to the Winter Palace. I'm your host, Mark Cole, editor and publisher of Odessa Steps Magazine. Today is the latest in our Splendid Isolation podcast series. Today we're foregoing the short format as I welcome back Mike Sempervivi from Wrestling Observer Live and the Mid-Atlantic Championship podcast. I don't think Mike and I can do a short pod together, so we're going to go extremely long on this one, talking about Bill Watts, Mid-South Wrestling, the UWF, Jim Crockett, Jim Crockett Promotions, the Jim Crockett Senior Memorial Cup, Bill Watts being buried under the Russian flag, wrestling television, as always, what television was like in the Baltimore, Washington area in the mid-1980s, Plus, uh, a whole bunch of other stuff, including Mike's new Mid-Atlantic podcast, how they picked when they were going to start, what time frame, um, some things to look forward to, some things they've already covered. Please give a listen. Hopefully, we'll be back with some more of these next week, if not sometime after that. Thanks for listening. We hope you enjoy the show. Welcome back to the Winter Palace. We're continuing our new Splendid Isolation podcast series. Today we've got a familiar voice from the wrestling podcast world, regular guest Mike Simpervivi, to chat about his new show and whatever else is going on in the wacky world of grappling. Uh, how's it going for you, Mike? I know you are close to me, but not too close to me. So uh, how are things down in the beach area? Not too bad. I, I've isolated away here uh, down at the beach, although it's it's easy to be isolated at the beach this time of year when there's not a lot of people down. And for the most part, people have stayed away. The people that have not stayed away have been shooed away by Governor Carney and all the restrictions that have been put on. So I am, knock on wood, very lucky. My schedule has not changed. I'm still working the same days that I have been working so I am very happy that way. And in fact, this is probably as close as I'll ever come to hitting lotto is being able to sit back and do as little as we, I'm actually doing right now at work, uh, which is, is giving me great time to watch uh, AEW and NXT overnight to ready myself for Wrestling Observer Live the next day. So having the gigs that I have, I'm, I'm very lucky. I'm very blessed. And uh, being able to do the Mid-Atlantic Championship podcast, too, as I take it into an immediate plug for that, because my co-host, Roman Gomez, is laid off out there in Las Vegas right now. He does union work out there. And, you know, there's just no conventions. There's just no work to be had right now. So because he has been off, we've been able to record more shows and it's kind of how we've been able to give back a little bit to everybody else out there who's just suffering right now. And you know, doing what you're doing, which is just trying to, to keep busy, try to keep sane by being creative and doing things and, and pumping stuff out to people to listen to. Yeah, it's like I had been planning on doing stuff. It's like I realized a couple of weeks ago that I hadn't realized that we hadn't done any pods at all this year, and I hadn't really been motivated due to – Oh, wow. Well, it was a lot of family stuff, so it was kind of like on the back burner, and – I was like, well, there is some stuff, you know, and the, a couple books came out and whatever and some TV shows I wanted to talk about. And then this stuff happened, and I was like, well, now i got plenty of time. So it's just, you know, if I do these little quick ones that, like, this is the third one that we've done so far, you know, that will at least keep me busy and keep you – because I know that I've gone – my 
podcast backlog had a couple hundred shows on it. And, you know, I've now whittled that down by, like, half probably in the last couple of weeks, you know, between that and, you know, uh, video games and whatnot to keep myself occupied. But it's like I know if I'm burning through content that being able to provide content for people probably wouldn't be the worst thing either. No, I hope this is a time where people, you know, because of the longer form, you know, we do that on Mid-Atlantic a little bit and we do the special shows, but it's like, you know, most podcasts are either 45 minutes to an hour in most cases, you know, some, you know, a little bit longer, a little bit shorter in most cases, or they're the big, long, epic ones and both serve a purpose right now. And you can burn through those. And I picked up some books uh, from Crowbar Press that I've been meaning to, to get for a while. So hopefully some of the things like that, uh, because people are cooped up and they are, you know, looking for anything and they are burning through Netflix and you get tired of playing this video game. So you move to this and you're bouncing all over the place. You know, ho- hopefully some of these things that sometimes get forgotten about, uh, hopefully get pushed to the forefront a little bit more, too, because I picked up Wrestling in the Garden, that book. And I don't know if you have that or not, but that thing is awesome i mean it's j michael Kenyon, and, and they go through with newspaper clippings and uh research every single card that ever took place at all of the madison square gardens down to i'm trying to think at what point in 2017 but all the way back to uh the, the 1845 i can't remember exactly what it is i'd have to grab the book and look at it but it's just one of those things where it's like you know as soon as i picked it up started like flipping through it it's like well i already got my 24.95 worth and I'm hoping somebody else out there is just kind of like going around saying, man, maybe there's a book I haven't read in a while and they wanted to grab it because there's a lot of good ones out there that fly under the radar. And that was a good one. Deed Silverstone passing away is a, you know, a reminder for that for people, too. I heard some people went to and picked up copies of his book because, you know, unfortunately with, with his passing, but but they you know looked at it. Hey, I'm, I'm cooped up anyway. This is a great time to, to get into this. I didn't realize until I was listening to. Last week's uh, um, podcast with Chris and Bix, when Bo James was on, that Tracy Smothers book was out. So I figured, I'm like, and he's apparently in the hospital, I guess, when they recorded that episode. So I think that's something I knew was on my radar, but I wasn't, it wasn't in the front of mind about when it was coming out. So now that I know that it's out, I'm going to try and pick that up and get a read on it because it's funny because i had just this is something i think bo mentioned on that episode that i noticed uh that's something i guess we'll get to now is i was i've been watching a bunch of mid-south and i guess bo said that that when he went to work for watts in 86 was like his first uh traveling territory because he was he was either in the well, he was in one of the first two episodes of the UWF when they rebranded, and I was like, "Hey, it's young Tracy Smothers," and I didn't realize it was oh, it's really, really young Tracy Smothers. Damn, I didn't even realize that. I gotta go back and watch those now. I didn't even remember him being there. He was. I just uh, I was looking at something a little while ago that there was an episode, one of the early episodes of Power Pro after in this time frame that. There was a match from Houston, I think, Tracy and Brett Sawyer wrestling the Blade Runners. So that's wow. certainly, that's an, that's, yeah, that's a, that's not quite a war level match, but it's certainly a random collection, <laughs> a random collection of people. 
But uh, yeah. it's, it's funny. I, I, I mentioned this to you on Twitter the other day that I was watching uh, the early – I had been watching the UWF slash Crockett shows because a lot of times I just sort of uh, – when I'm watching regular stuff on YouTube, because you never know how those algorithms work, and all of a sudden something will pop up and you're like, oh, I haven't seen that in a while or – whatever and it was it was some i think it was the it must have been the first show because it was when bubba beat the gang for the uwf title and so you know you watch that one and then the next one pops up and then so i I watched like three or four and it was sort of so obvious it was so instantaneous how this was just oh yeah it's just, and like, it wasn't necessarily bad. It was just obviously different. And I guess watching those kicked in the algorithm, and so it started offering me like the very first UWF shows from March and April of '86 when they had the name change. And it did that. I mean, I can't. I'm sure I've watched them plenty of times since then, but. I hadn't watched them lately, and it's amazing how much I actually remembered from, like, their first three or four episodes because of what an impact it made on me. It's like you, like me, being in the middle land. Here, here's here. Well, we're only 10 minutes into the show, and we'll already start talking about Baltimore and Washington wrestling TV. Um, that, and we will be, too. Because I, I already, that's, get, I already that's, got to percolate now. Yeah, it's it's it's. We can't avoid it, but, uh, but like, I remember watching those first episodes and did, did we fear it? Was it on 54? Is that what, is that what you said? What probably was on on 54 channels or 50 out of DC. But I mean, I can probably, I can vividly remember that because I mean, you know, mids, I mean, we got a lot of stuff here anyway. But, uh, you know, it was we either 10 o'clock in the it was either 9, 10 or 11, because I'm trying to think if it was pro came on at nine or 10 and then the UWF would follow at 10 or 11, I think, on Saturday morning. At least that's how it was for a, a limited period of time. And then I think 50 would have it on at like 2 p.m. on Saturdays. And then during the week, they ended up shifting it when they did their week of wrestling and they had it on at six o'clock. I, I think on Thursday it was the episode from the, the previous Saturday. See, my problem is, as we've discussed probably every time that you've been on, is like, since since I got Baltimore and Philadelphia TV, like, it's kind of a blur as to which show was on what channel and what time. I just know, you know, from mid-Saturday morning until Saturday afternoon, we probably, I could probably watch like all of the Crockett shows and all of the WWF syndicated shows and Mid-South and AWA slash Pro Wrestling USA, you know, all in that sort of couple hours, but I couldn't, I couldn't necessarily remember the order right now or which channel was which. I just know it was on, but, you know, I can just you know, I was already, you know, solidly an NWA person at that point. And, you know, having read about Mid-South in the magazines, 
there's just those first couple UWF shows are such a great example of like almost prototypical mid south with like intricately laid out storylines plus a lot better in ring action. Certainly than WWF, maybe on a par with Crockett, but you know, in the in those first two or three UWF episodes, it's got you've you've got all the titles changing hands, you've got Duggan and Sawyer, you've got the Sheep Herders and Doc and Ted, and then you've got the Sheep Herders and the Fantastics. Like yeah. all in the first all in the first couple weeks, plus a bunch of music videos. And I noticed that on I think it was the second show, that there must have been like maybe six or seven squash matches on TV and at least 80% of them were heels. And it was just like, again, Watts knows what he's doing. He's like getting over all of these new guys right away, especially the heels. And this wasn't even like all of the new influx of talent because Mantel was booking then, but he hadn't brought in, you know, the Freebirds weren't there yet, but you still had all of this new talent coming in. And I knew some, you know, I was still a relatively new fan at that point, but I still knew, you know, I knew Slater and Sawyer from Crockett, and I knew Terry Taylor from Crockett, and I knew, you know, the other, like, Duggan and DiBiase and Doc from the magazines and the Sheepers from the magazines, but, and, and Gilbert, but it was... It was so refreshing, and it's like I can still feel that even when I watch this stuff 30 years later. Same here. I mean, it was – because watching it, it was familiar because you knew a lot of these guys in the magazines, and you've seen them before, and and this, that, and the third. But, like, it was still dangerous and foreign because, you know, it was – they're talking about Louisiana – and, and, and Arkansas and the wrestling in Oklahoma and Texas and you wanted to be there. The, the, the TV was special. I mean, these guys felt real. These were guys you knew were tough. They were wrestlers and football players and guys that you believed in. And they were characters that you got. And anybody that was influenced by the NWA, especially people between, you know, Philly and Richmond, you know, when, when the, well, obviously Richmond was always Crockett territory, but when the, the influx came and when all of the TV came and the, the saturation and things opened up and started to change, anybody that was, was caught up by what was going on in the NWA, the Mid-South deal was a perfect hand-in-hand combination, better than anything on world class, better than anything with the AWA, certainly anything better within the, with the WWF. It was just a natural fit. It was perfect. And it was great. It, it was absolutely fantastic. And everything you said about the changeover is the absolute truth. As soon as it happened, you could feel it and you knew it. And especially people that were familiar with it, as soon as you saw Magnum TA and you saw some of the moves that got made, Steve Cox getting buried. And it was, you know, it was a rough time. But, you know, it was funny that if you look at it on paper, you see the names that were bandied about and still there and on the roster and, and, you know, usable at the time that Crockett took over, you look at those names and you would go, man, what's wrong? What's, what could you do with this? But it was depressed at that point. And they did try to shoot, you know, some excitement into it and bring in Barry Windham was a good touch, but 
they they really made some mistakes, you know, killing of Steve Cox, even though there really wasn't much you could do with him anyway. It was a really a, you know, a, a quick fall from grace. And it was a real slap in the face that people who had built up and been invested in watching some of these characters that all of a sudden started to change. You know, Gary Young and Steve Cox and the weirdness of that feud that was taking place. And unfortunately, there were there were too many things like that. And there was not enough of what made it great, even though there were still great guys there, including Steve Williams and Ted DiBiase. Yeah, it's it's just it's just so weird when you watch. I mean, watching it in hindsight now and it's like this is the UWF show and there's Jim Ross. But it's like, oh, there's Sam Houston. Oh, there's Baby Doll. And you're just like... And I don't know, even if at that point in my limited knowledge... I mean, because, of course, there were, you know... As we always have to say, there was no internet. There was no readily available sheet. So all we really had was the magazines. But it's like... If you think about, you know... This is, what, the second time that, like... Sam and Baby Doll had been exiled from Crockett, you know, because I, I assume they had already been in Central States by then. Well, th- that was part of the deal here was, and this is, and, and I, you'll have to, you know, probably cinch the history on this up as I'm saying it, but if I recall from what Dahl said, uh, they were already, the Central States deal was gone. He had already left from there. There was bad terms and bad feelings there, and he was out. And one of the only places he could go was to go down and be in, in Dallas and the, the, wherever UWF was technically headquartered at that point and work for the UWF. And then he was in there and in the mix. And then the the sale happened in April, uh, around, I guess it was April of 88. And he was once again, or 87. And then he was once again toast after that. Yeah, it's just, oh, it's, it's just, it's, you know, even now it's just so frustrating. It's like the way it was botched and it was just, oh, man, they're yeah. just is so there's so many, you know, and it was but, the know. greatest wrestling promotion. And I, and I'm saying this as somebody that grew up with 80, you know, 85, 86, 87 Crockett. And I believe in it very much. I, I look, and again, this is partially because it was a unicorn because, you know, I'm sitting in, in DC and in, and in and, and Hoko, and it, this stuff's taking place in, in Muskogee. And, you know, but the reality was, honestly, when it was humming and at its best, I don't know if there was ever better pro wrestling and ever better emotional TV than what was taking place in, in Mid-South slash UWF. I, I just, I don't know. I, I, I Again, the, the ambiance and the atmosphere and what they were able to pull off in Tulsa and Jim Ross – yeah, I, I just I don't know. It always worked for me, and I always thought it was it was amazing. And again, I'll take an '86 card from Crockett all day, a, a pristine card. But damn, itself was really good. It just for for what I liked out of wrestling and some of the characters and the grime I liked. I I, I always thought it was great. The funny thing that I noticed watching those early UWF shows is, and again the whole way that the UWF and Crockett were intertwined is if you watch the very first UWF episode, which is from like the middle of March in, in 86. So it's from March 22nd. So you get your, you get your intro. Like there's a, there's a cold, or, um, there's clips with Duggan and, or uh, Duggan and Mad Dog to start. And then you get Ross and Joel Watts. 
to introduce the show and, you know, where this is a new show, blah, 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 blah. And how do they spend the first 10 minutes of the first episode of the UWF talking about the Crockett Cup? Showing that package that I think is the same package that they showed on Crockett TV that the yeah. press the press conference with Bill's Jim, hat. Yeah, Bill Bill and Francis and Jim Crockett and the guys pipping the travel packages and everything like that. And it's it's so funny in hindsight, it's like the very first episode of the UWF TV show is like all about Crockett and Again, a, a, a Crockett and Watts working together, and it ends up not working. And it's sort of like this beautiful microcosm. It's like, you know, or like a harbinger. It's almost like we're perfect to work together, but it's just not going to work. And, you know, there's, you know, I guess you could look at how many different ways, you know, the story about, you know, the story Cornell tells about New Orleans and it already being depressed in in the mid, in the early 1986 and doing two shows in one day. And, you know, the even even the choices in the booking of who they used. And it's almost like is it should have worked. It just it just didn't. And then, of course, you know, for the longest time, we, uh, it's like we, all we had was the one Crockett videotape with, with all of these, a lot of dream matches, as it turned out in that tournament that, you know, we never knew how good they were because we only saw clips. And then it's funny that I had asked, um, last year, I had asked JJ, I had asked Cornette. I think I even asked Dave. I said, "Does this, does this, is this Crockett footage actually exist anywhere?" Because you know, I think we may have talked about this on the on a pod before, that we were starting to run out of Holy Grail footage. I mean, it's like, you know, it's like once the last Battle of Atlanta shows up on video, that you know, none of us thought we'd ever see, and then you start trying to figure out what's what could be white whales that nobody's found. And I always thought the first Crockett Cup, because of how good it was on paper, would be one of them. And they all thought the footage didn't exist. And then, lo and behold, it shows up on the network of all places. Yeah. And, and that, But, because, I mean, I'm sure, you know, like me, it's like you had all these teams on paper. A lot of people in 1986 that I had only read about you know what I mean? I had never seen those guys from Portland before. Yeah. You know, I don't even, you know, the Batten twins, you know, who the heck are they? <laughs> you know, and then you get all these sort of random other teams. You know, you got Martell and Bravo, which, you know, didn't end up happening. And then you got Baba and Tiger Mask. It's like, and now, but it's like the more you learn about it. I mean, I'm kind of annoyed in hindsight. Now that I know how things worked, it's like, why? As far as I, because they apparently were on good terms, but according to Ron Fuller, they weren't invited to participate, which is funny because, as far as I know, 
as far as he said, you know, he was always on good terms with Crockett and he was friends with Watts. So it's like, why was there no stud stable in the Crockett Cup? Why were there yeah. no night? Where were there no nightmares in the Crockett Cup? You know, well, instead you, of you know, you never Coke. know though. You never know though when it comes to you know. And I know that they've the Fullers have done great work, and and Ron on the Arcadian Vanguard Network has got his show, and you know we've we've been able to die, find out a lot about Atlanta and the Knoxville territory and a lot of that. But it's also that's one guy saying that, and you had a, a group of guys that. They did not like, even though they got along well with everybody and they had family history and roots that, that dug back deep with all of these other people, with Watts, with with Crockett, with everybody. You know, how much did they play nice with everyone? They didn't really. They didn't They didn't not play nice, and the Fullers always had a great role in the NWA, but they were self-sufficient. And if their guys weren't going to be placed in a position where, I mean, you know, if you're going to do double DQ, but it's like, oh, okay, well, that was what the Fantastics and the Sheepherders were going to do. So it's like, would it, would the juice be worth the squeeze to go over to New Orleans when we could be making money in Birmingham that night and not messing with all that that politics and all that other nonsense? And, and I guess, and he, and I guess and you've, you've got the whole thing where, you know, everyone talks about, even Ron talks about, how they wanted to keep to themselves and keep secret. And, you know, he lets the Nightmares go to this, and they have a great match on TV. And then it's like, well, then maybe maybe Watts or Crockett want to steal them. And then suddenly he's lost his tag team. Yeah, all of a sudden they're working Florida. They're working, you know, wherever they're working, you know, after that. You know, they moved on to somewhere else or in somewhere in Crockett's sphere of influence. And that could absolutely happen. And. I do want to mention this because you talk about the beginning of the show. I think this is where Bill Watts was playing chess at that time, though, because when you begin, you know, knowing you're going to begin the UWF at a certain point, knowing you're going to be working with Crockett when it came to the cup, the the motivation of knowing WTBS is there and, and making sure that your now new nationally syndicated TV show you know, is getting a little bit of attention. You're the name, at least your, your promotion is getting word on WTBS again, a place that you had success, a place that people liked hearing you and seeing you. You get to remind those people again from the year before, you know, when they lost you, when Crockett went exclusive on the, the, the network that, hey, not only are we here, but the biggest tournament that, that the NWA and Jim Crockett could do, it's going to be taking place in our building. You know, our home, the home the junkyard dog built. It's going to be ours, and I don't, I don't think that that. To me, it's just you look at Jim, you know, Jim Ross and and and, and Bill Watts and Joel Watts and and the whole crew that was there, and you look at the decisions that were made. Obviously, made mostly and almost exclusively by Bill, but you look at the decisions they made over the years and. They're not dumb, so I, I would think that that was matched up with perfect timing and, and knowing that everything was going to work out and there was going to be a lot of serendipity. Yeah, the other thing that was funny is, is one of the early episodes is, and again, this was another reason why I I liked Mid South was the whole, you know, Watt was never afraid to talk about anything on his show. And one of the early episodes, they they brought back Bill and Buddy to do a 
to win a squash match on TV to get ready for the tournament. And, you know, it's like, hey, these guys are, you know, these guys are from Memphis and Louisville and whatever. And, you know, Buddy wasn't here that long ago and Bill was here a little while ago. And it's like, you know, if this was other wrestling companies, they would have pretended they, you know, that these are guys that had never been here before, even though they had been here six months ago. Yeah. But, you hey, know, also... Yeah, I always just, that's one of the things I always loved about the UWF was the whole, you know, Bill Watts is going to talk about whatever he wants to talk about. And, you know, your guys are given free reign to talk about other promotions and other matches they've had or feuds with guys they had in other places that are here now. It's, to me, that was always refreshing. Oh, absolutely. And it it always helped that, you know, if, if, Dundee and Landell lost in the first round to Taylor and Williams too. So that helped with them being on TV kind of, you know, that, that was an itch that was going to be easily scratched by Watts too with, with them going over the first round. Uh, but, you know, I, I, I just, I, it was just still the, it was the best show and Watts, Watts could over explain things, but nobody could really explain anything like Bill Watts and Jim Ross. You know, in sometimes if you stand back, it's like Jesus, listen to him screaming. But you know, he would scream over the crowd. It was, you know, Roman pointed this out on the show. It was, you know, he knew how to be over the crowd, and he knew how to project over that. He knew how to sell what Watts was was giving him to to you know the product to push. And whether Michael Hayes was at his side or Ted DiBiase or, or no matter who it was, you know, it, obviously they were better than Joel and, and Mantell and some of the other guys, you know, sometimes that would be there with him. But, I mean, he did a perfect job selling it, and it was just a, you know, it was a great show. In 86, God, they were loaded up in 86 and, and, and full, you know, ready to go. And that's the other thing. They, they made, most of the time, they made the best use of their talent where, a lot of other places weren't, you know, they were at that point really humming with almost everything that they were doing. Well, the other thing that I liked about that show is that even the formats were kind of unpredictable, or at least they were often non-formulaic, I guess, because they would do the thing where you have a big TV match and instead of having it last, you put it like in the middle and then you say one faller television time remaining, at which point we are conditioned to think this match is now going to go a half an hour. Whereas it actually goes 15, 18 minutes. They go to a commercial, they come back and we've got a standby match because these matches were ready in case this match ended early. And it did. Yeah. So yes, it was just <laughs> like a three minute squash Match, but it again, it's logical. And Mid South, I think, was the first place that I actually saw them come back from the commercial, and the match had ended, and they showed us what happened during the commercial. It's like that's a trope that they actually broke. It's like they did what they said they were going to, that never happens, and it did, and then they did it. Well, that's what there was. Yeah, they every once in a while they would do that stuff to keep you honest because that was the point. You know, if it never happened, then you never believed it. You know, it, 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 you never believed it could happen. But when it did happen every once in a while, it kept everybody honest. It's like you know the 
the the the ninety second roll up, you know, that we get Murdoch or something like that. It's just kind of like the, the shock to the system. And when done in in the proper fashion, it works. It's like you know, look, it's like the ten minute draw with the prelim guy. And you think it's like you know, on paper, it's like Jesus, this thing went ten minutes. What the hell was going on here? But in reality, it was getting those tight guys work. But what it was really doing was it was giving the announcers or whoever it was or whatever was going on a chance to sell, <laughs> you know. And and, and it, it again, as far as the wrestling universe of it goes, sometimes matches go to draws with evenly masked people. You know, it happens all the time. Teams play to a tie. We go to extra innings. We go to overtime. We we go to sudden death. You know, it happens. But if it never happens, then what's the point of ever announcing a time limit, right? You know, so that's, you know, it was always stuff like that was always great. And and the, the reminder in Jim Cornette in the book, and it's always one of the stories that he loves to bring up. But it damn it, it matters where, you know, hey, guys, I know you're all superstars and everybody knows every move that you're making out there. But maybe just maybe if you're going to have like a bunkhouse match, you know, go out there with your gear on. If you're going to have a tape fist match, go out there for the interviews and tape your damn fists. You know, attention to detail. This stuff matters. Aesthetics matter. Details matter. All that sort of stuff plays into the bigger thing. And again, at that time, you know, because of how Watts was with his with his deal and how he was as a as a boss, as a manager, as a coach, that shit mattered. You know, and it mattered big time. And the results were when you had the the quality of people there. You know, it, it worked out and uh, it came across on TV magnificently. Again, if if it's really a sport, you know, things happen. Yeah. You know, so you're prepared for any eventuality. Whereas if you're a scripted entertainment product, you know, then, you know, people are going to win in the last minute of, the sh- you know, whatever. And it's like, no, because stuff happens. So it's like, again, you know. Again, we're preaching. We are preaching to the converted. So I will just to to segue. I'll just say since we're giving recommendations of stuff, as like almost any UWF show that people want to try and find, and you know everything's available on YouTube probably or or similar. But it's like you know, like I said, I've I watched this week the first four or five episodes of the UWF TV, and you know for people that haven't seen it and Again, if you listen to last week's, I didn't realize this, but this was the week they talked about on Between the Sheets with Bo last week that I had just watched all the stuff and then they were they ended up talking about it. But the, you know, the brilliance of the Dix of the Dick Slater Buzz Sawyer title changes in Watts and the open contract and it's like it's so great and it's it certainly pales when you again when you've watched the last 20 years of it being done on Monday nights and you're like when it's done poorly. But when you see, you know, when you, again, when you have the good guy boss who outthinks the heel, which doesn't always happen in modern wrestling, you know, and you can, and then you can see it happening. And then when you know what's going to happen and you watch it again, it's even more brilliant. You know, when Dick Slater says, is your is your word good? And Watt says my word is as good as yours. <laughs> and he burns him, and then, then they come back the next week, and Slater's mad again, 
And he's like, you tricked me. And he said, my word's as good as yours. And he says, no, my word's better than yours. And Watts is like, so your word is better than mine. And your word is good. Yes, yes, yes. Well, then you gave that other belt to Sawyer last week. So he's the champion now. Because your word's good and it's better than mine. And, you know, he's got the, the, the highest uh, praise I can give it is like, when the heel ends up making the same face as the bad guy at the end of an episode of Mission Impossible, you've done your job. <laughs> but I, I, re- I remember my 10-year-old brain not fully being able to take that into, I was like, I was baffled. I could, it was just like, wait, wait a second. Wait, wait a second. He wasn't even the champion. How can he hand his belt over and do this? I was completely baffled. And then the great thing is, then, I mean, Slater left, but it was like, then you have, because it also goes against the whole, all baby faces are friends and all heels are friends. Because it's like, Slater tries to get his belt back and Buzz is like, I don't think so. You can try and take it. And there's, you know, Rick Steiner standing right next to him getting ready to pop. It's like. Boy, if there's a street fight you don't want to get in the middle of, Buzz Sawyer, Rick Steiner, and Dick Slater. <laughs> you know what I mean? It's like, no thank you. But, well, and, uh, then, and then, like I was saying with Duggan, and then Duggan winning. The, the, the fourth part of that car, I wouldn't want you know, anybody jumping out and getting in a fight with, you know, to, to beat Sawyer, you know, who <laughs> was defending it for Slater. Like that, how that played out and like looking back, and that's the other thing, too, is like I was so young. I was 10, 11, 12 years old when it was on. And I, I just, as an aside, because I was going back to do uh, GIFs and, and put up videos on Twitter for the Mid-Atlantic show uh, for this time in, you know, on this day in JCP TV history, you know, I have an audio tape here. And, I, and I'm going back and I'm watching Pro and I'm watching Worldwide and I'm watching the UWF from that week. And it's like all these memories rushing back that I can remember you know, recording the tape that I have sitting right here. And I can remember being there in the moment and being excited for, you know, the things going on with the Crockett Cup and watching that day in 87, like not having WTBS because where we had moved to, I didn't have cable. So I didn't know the week before on WTBS, Stan Lane was now in place of Dennis Condry. So then they, of course, they do the live shot because they're live you know, we're watching Channel 54, 10, 11 o'clock in the morning. That night, that afternoon is going to be the Crockett Cup. And there's Stan Lane sitting on the side of the ring. And it was just like, you know, those memories rushing back were just, you know, absolutely awesome. And, and the again, the, those UWF ones, again, at that moment, at that time, were they, I mean, they had, and they were, they did things and not being able to see Memphis, they were doing things that, that they just weren't doing with, with Crockett. You know, they, they they didn't do barbed wire. That was something you saw in the magazines that they did in Puerto Rico. So to see the the, the Fantastics and Jack Victory and, and the Sheep Herders and Terry Taylor and the, the barbed wire cage and some of the other stuff that they would do was just, oh, man, it, it was just, it was awesome. Yeah. Like I said, it's hard to go, it's hard to go wrong with much of that early. And, of course, you know, my second all-time favorite angle so much so i named one of my magazines after it you know variant you know again speaking of intricately amazingly booked angles 
And I don't know if that was Eddie himself or if it was Mantell or if it was Watts. But, you know, people who haven't seen it or did not know that we used to have a magazine called Russian Flag Burial, that uh, the brilliance of the angle of burying the cowboy, because it's because it's not because it's an because it's a show long length angle for people that haven't seen it. And uh, maybe this will I'll put this as one of the clips in the pod. So Eddie Gilbert is managing the world's only fat Russian wrestler, Korsita Korchenko, um, who is, you know, again, it's 1986, so we're at the height of evil Russians. So, uh, and he's shooting with Watts, because Watts is John Wayne, and... We go through the thing, and they've been feuding back and forth. And, of course, Korchenko is burying guys under the Russian flag, as people did back then. With the added brilliance of Eddie Gilbert carrying a little red shovel and pretending to bury people with the shovel for people who are old enough to understand the actual real Cold War. So they're feuding and blah, 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 blah. So Gilbert comes out. Uh in like the middle of the show or the beginning of the show says, uh, I want to talk to Bill Watts. Not, I want to talk to Tom, but I want to talk to Bill Watts. And he's like, uh, I got some stuff I need to say. And they say, not now, Eddie, go away. So he's like, okay, comes back another segment. I really need to talk to the cowboy. Blah, 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 blah. Go away. Come back. Finally, goes through the, finally, Watts comes out, because Watts is in the truck, because, you know, he runs the show, but he's not on commentary. Gilbert says, I've seen the light. I've imagined this Russian. I'm a bad American. You're right. I'm wrong. I, I want to apologize. Watts says, okay, you know, I don't know if he shakes his hand or not, but he sort of says, sure. And then... Eddie's like, well, let's let's burn this Russian flag right here in the middle of the ring. And, of course, you know, Watts is going to love that. So, in the meantime, as this is going on, suddenly in the aisle are the Blade Runners, who Gilbert manages. And Watts is like, oh. And he starts looking all weird. And he's like, no, 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 no. He's like, I'm still going to manage the Blade Runners. They're the best team in the world, blah, 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 blah. But, you know, I'm not going to manage the Russians. So he's like, okay, so let's bury the flag. And then all of a sudden, from the other aisle, or out of the crowd, not only comes Korchenko, but come Ivan and Nikita, who are, of course, in the Crockett Cup. So they've been wrestling there, too. And they beat Holy Hell out of Watts. Gilbert busts him open with the little red Russian shovel. And then they bury him under the Russian flag. And the baby faces come to make the save. But look, there's the Blade Runners are in the aisle, so the good guys can't get to them. And then finally, you know, they get run off. And, and of course, the greatest part is, talking about all heels being friends with each other, Michael Hayes, who's been doing commentary with Jim Ross, has been upset because he's mad that Gilbert is sucking up to Watts and whatever. 
And then as soon as the turn happens, Michael Hayes is ecstatic. He gives and he gives Eddie the highest praise available. He's like, that's as good as a freebird plan. And so, which leads to Watts coming out of retirement, which again was something that they had done too often, and the diminishing returns. And then when they shift the feud over to the Freebirds, Watts is still out there, and it sort of outlives his usefulness. But you know, for somebody who had only been watching wrestling for a little while, that was such a great genius angle. So heavy. So heavy with characters you knew, you know, with Ivan and Nikita, and you didn't know Krachenko, but it didn't matter because Eddie Gilbert was there. And it wasn't the same dynamic that Watts had with Jim Cornette, but they were going for that same type of feel because it was going to lead to the same type of thing, you know, Oklahoma Stampede, you know, the Cowboys coming out of retirement, and he's going to get his revenge on the Russian, and he's going to get his revenge on that wimp Eddie Gilbert. And, Doc DiBiase and Duggan running down and getting clipped up by the Blade Runners. I remember as a kid yelling at the TV. It's like, come on. There's three of you. There's two of them. And, like, you both, like, Duggan, I think, was in the middle, and they converged onto one guy. And I, like, oh, come on. Somebody's got to get to the Cowboy. And it was perfect. And Eddie Gilbert, man, I wanted to grow up and be Eddie Gilbert. And, you know, then even later on with Missy Hyatt with the Steiners, I just Eddie Gilbert was always just so great to me. He was always so relatable because he didn't he wasn't the monster or any of that stuff. But it's like he aesthetically, you know, especially, you know, not watching him early on in his career, you know, being too young to really know you know, pre-83 Eddie Gilbert and know like Nashville and all that stuff that he did with Tommy Rich, you know, when he was turning heel. I didn't know that. I saw when I got Eddie, I got a refined version of Eddie who was not heavy in the mix. You know, he was still a little bit lower down on the card. He, he, he would play lower, you know, he would lose in preliminaries and he'd be played for the fool sometimes, even though he had his guys that he'd manage. He wasn't that dude. But then, very quickly, he became that dude. And then we got that angle, and it was like, from then on, man, you know, I was in the tank for Eddie Gilbert for the rest of my life, you know, for the rest of his life while he was alive. You know, I became an Eddie Gilbert fan because of that, and everything that went on with, you know, the, the move to Hyatt Hot Stuff International and the whole voyage that he took and then ended up with just Sting and Steiner, and you get Sting, Steiner, Missy, and Gilbert standing there, and it's like, man, this is this is great, this is great. And it, the, the the Taylor, we've talked about it before with Taylor and, and Adams, probably the last great thing that, that the UWF did, you know, which played itself out once the Crockett bought them. You know, that was a it was a brilliant move that they had made there. So, yeah, I mean, oh, so much good stuff. And, you know, you know, taking it back to, you know, the 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 early days of their UWF TV when they signed the Von Erichs. I had never seen a burial video. They always show uh, the 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 million dollar contract signing and the highlight package, but they they never usually show. And you can watch it. Bryant Williams, I think, is the name of the guy on YouTube who put up all these old UWFs and UWF Power Pros from the time that Mid South flipped and became UWF all the way through until the bitter end in December of '87. He has put all of them up on YouTube, and once you watch. When you watch that episode where the Freebird sign, they also had the burial video where they just kicked the shit out of the Von Erichs. And, you know, everybody saw the Von I mean, World Class was on everywhere, on on all of the channels. It'd be spot on ESPN. 
I mean, and they were the Von Ericks. And I had never seen an ass-kicking video like that. I That burial video, and you know, I've seen a bunch, and, and Watts did a bunch, you know, where he'd, he'd make fun of guys and point out the flaws of guys. But that music video where they're just laying waste to the Simpsons and the Von Erichs and Lance Von Erich and all that stuff, I thought, I mean, to this day, it still sticks in my memory. And anybody that, I love that. I wish they would play that more and hype that one up more. I don't know if it's the same video, but there's... This may have actually been a world-class video, not a UWF video. But one of the Freebird videos is the one that I always remember is, I think it's the one that uses Can't Stop Rockin'. And it's the one where, I think it must be in Fort Worth, because like, I didn't recognize it, because you know we only saw the Sportatorium in syndication, where it's Lawrence doing the announcing, and it's like, he goes like, hey, he's Gordy Roberts. Kevin is thrown into the orchestra pit. And you're like, I, I think that's it. I think that's it. And I think it was, I don't know if they were just clips or whatever it was, or if that was originally world class or if that was just put together. But man, yeah, I think that's the one. I, yeah, I think that's the one because it's, yeah, it's just them just beating the, 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 the brakes off of everybody. Because I remember at the time, because, again, I hadn't been watching all that long. I mean, this, I may be like a year into watching at this point. And I still remember, like, when they put the belt on Gordy. And I was like, really? It's like they have all these guys, and they pick, like, the guy who's one of the Freebirds. I mean, in hindsight, now it's like Gordy is the perfect Bill Watts guy. You know what I mean? He's a, you know... He's he's a grade A Bill Watts Haas if ever there is one, and he's still. But I mean, at that point, I'm just like, oh, it's the guy who's. Why is one of the guys who's in the Freebird tag team now the world champion? You know, I was like, you know, when you've got Doc and Gordy and DiBiase and you know whoever else is around, but you know now it makes perfect sense. But well, yeah, I to mean, me, Gordy, to me, Gordy was always a tag team wrestler. And again, I'm being a kid, like, but that's how I knew him in the magazines and when I'd see him in the AWA and Pro Wrestling USA and all that stuff. He would be, he'd be in a tag team or, or with the Von Erics or any of that stuff. So like, I, it was it was during the rain. I, I I got to understand it more, but I did it didn't really sink in until much later on in understanding Japan and understanding what working was and a lot of that. Like I didn't I didn't get it, but like. You know, it was again. That was the only block I had to to get over, and I and I didn't really understand it. And being a such a fan of the good guys at that time, Duggan, Steve Williams, Ted DiBiase, it's like, you know, those were the guys. Like, well, why, why them? Why the why the big tag team guy? You know, and then that was a hard one for me to get over. See, I didn't mind because even though even in my very short limited watching i was our i mean i was a heel fan at you know 14 15 so you know i mean i was i did not mind you know i mean like i said i already like grown to gilbert you know i had i mean i instantly identified with Cornette the first time i saw him on world-class tv <laughs> you know what i mean because uh, absolutely you know, you know i said this before it's like he's the smart aleck kid who's wearing glasses and plays tennis i mean plays tennis you know and like all these things that i was and i was like 
and he like manages like these guys who are really good, you know. <laughs> and of course, in that, in and not even getting to see them at their best in world class, you know, because it wasn't long from when I started watching was when they moved to Crockett, and you know, admittedly they didn't get to do a whole lot that first six months when they were just, you know, because I because you know I was only seeing syndication. So it's like, you know, once they sort of got shuttled to the Atlanta half of the territory, I was like, they're on, you know, they're on TV every couple of weeks. And, of course, they're saddled with this feud with Jimmy Valiant and Rocky King. But, uh, you know, I sort of knew already who I liked. And I sort of, like, almost immediately decided that I didn't like Dusty as a character. So it's like... Yeah, so I was, I, you know, I immediately went with, like, Cornette and Tully and the Andersons right away, and and Buddy. See, for so, me, Tully was hard. Tully was hard because I liked Rick so much because my, what was galvanized into me was Rick, Youngblood, and Steamboat. And then it was Rick and Tully. And, like, and now you can talk to people about it because they understand it, but, like, for the longest time, you would talk about the lost year of 84 to people, and it's like... You have no idea what it, how good Tully and Wahoo were and how Tully carried the show and Tully going after Flair. And it's like people look at you like you had three heads. And it's like, no, I'm telling you, I, it was good stuff. And and Tully, oh, God, Tully was just he was just so good. And Rick, you know, and I hated him and I absolutely hated him at the time. And, and Rick, I really liked a lot, which is one of the reasons I didn't like I liked, but I didn't like Dusty. I I. Dusty had probably an incredible amount of influence on me. I identified a lot with Dusty, at least what the rap was, as far as, you know, the working man and coming up and, you know, having the big highs and the really low lows and, like, man, really relatable stuff. But, like, when they would get into it, like, I don't think I ever really wanted to see Dusty. I don't think I ever wanted to see Dusty win. I always cheered Flair. I always hoped there would be a way for Flair to get out of it where – you know, there were times where I hope Barry Windham and Magnum TA would, would beat Flair, but with Dusty, it was like I never really wanted to boo him. I never had that visceral, nasty reaction that people had, even later on in 88 and stuff like that. Even when I was kind of tired of seeing him in the mix, I never really wanted to, to see him be pushed out that bad. But, like, yeah, I mean, compared to those guys, I mean, the guys with the heavy raps, the, especially Cornette, I always liked the preachers. I like Reverend Ike on Channel Twenty would come on after I can't remember what wrestling would be on or whatever it was, but then Reverend Ike, who would sell <laughs> a prosperity preacher who made no bones about the fact that he wants you to send him money and he will send you this anointing oil because God wants him to have wealth and have money because he doesn't want doesn't want him to be poor. So like that, you know, those raps were like I would fall into that stuff, and, and Jim Cornette and Dusty and anybody with the the heavy the, the heavy mouth, they were great. And Cornette was just amazing to this day. And I was probably more influenced by him with the way that I ramble than, than anybody else. But it just his attention to detail, how he would hit spots, how he could remember things and spit out stories and all that sort of stuff. I was always just absolutely amazed by. The thing, one of the things that I disliked about Dusty's character was this weird dichotomy of the whole on the hard times, common man, son of a plumber, yet 
also he's wearing a fur coat <laughs> comes out with the fur coats and the diamonds yeah. and they played they played uh one of his one of his promos on between the sheets the other day about i guess there was some article in usa today that i don't know if it was comparing regular athletes to wrestlers or something like that but you know he was like I make more money than you, Joe Montana. I got three houses and three Mercedes Benzes, and it's, yeah. And the and when America's team would come out in the fur coats, and I'm just like, you know, that's Flair's gimmick. Flair is showing off how much money he has, because he's a dick. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, and he's 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 better than you. But it's like, wait, you're the common man, but yet, you know, you're the fur coat wearing limousine what you know and it's like if just wear your blue jeans and your sloppy joe's t-shirt and your skull hat the copenhagen hat yeah yeah and 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 yeah okay yeah you want to and you want to hang around with willie nelson and waylon jennings that makes sense it's like you're not you shouldn't be hanging around with Let's see, 1980, you know, Michael Jackson or Prince or whomever else. It's like, leave that to Flair. I mean, Flair should be the one, you know, he should be, I, he should be like, you know, he should be the one dating Farrah, you know, it's like 1980. I don't know who 19, who it would be in 1980. You know, like Flair's the one that should be like with Madonna or Bo Derek or yeah, Sheena Easton or whoever it would be yeah. at the time. Yeah, well, I think the the best the the one way that they played it that was relatable and I think worked the best was the Lakers Celtics then. Yeah, because you know for the for for the Carolinas people in the in the long times they you know the the Duke the Carolina type of mentality college mentality the Lakers and L A and all that sort of the bullshit that was going on out there that that was unrelatable to them so it gave me you know that was perfect for the Horsemen to be matched up to that and if they were gonna like something it would be the perception of the workmen's the history and the tradition and the 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 whatever it would be of the Boston Celtics. I thought that actually that was a good way I thought to play the game and being more, you know, being more of a Laker person that it was perfect for me with the horsemen and all that stuff and, and seeing Rick there with the, the gear that was signed by the Lakers. And of course now of course you don't always put things in different parts of your life together at the right time, but you're like well I'm like, of course, Flair should be a Lakers fan. One, it's, you know, Showtime, Glitz, and Glamour. But it's like, I'm sure Rick Flair knows James Worthy. Yes, sure, of course. <laughs> because I'm sure James Worthy probably, you know, again, before, you know, before sports expanded in the mid-1980s, it's like Rick Flair was probably the biggest sports star in North Carolina that didn't play for the Tar Heels, and it was probably it bigger, Richard, than some, bigger than some see, of the Tar Heels. It wasn't Richard Petty. I mean, yeah. Yeah, Richard unless Petty, was, yeah. Unless it was Richard Petty, there was nobody bigger than Ric Flair, unless it was, you know, the top level, unless you were Dean Smith or playing at a top level somewhere. So, yeah, I mean, and the, I think Flair did tie that in, especially in 87 when, when things were going on, when it was uh, Ole going out the door and Brad Armstrong, where Flair, I think, you know, he was really flossing out there with the the championship Lakers 
gear or the you know that that he had on and, and hyping that stuff up. So yeah, I mean they they did even play it into that. I think he did mention it then uh, that he knew Worthy, and then of course you know my God, how many teams has Flair cheered for and, and proclaimed to be a member of of their tribe over the years? My God, whether it be the Florida Gators or Carolina or Michigan or God knows who else. Well, see, that's another weird thing where you think about it. It's like, you know, like the ball coach would have been in Carolina in the mid 80s, like during the height of Crockett promotions. So it's like it's like entirely logical that Flair would have ended up becoming friends with him then. And that would have stuck. So that, you know, that one at least makes sense. You know. Again, it's weird when you start mixing real sports and wrestling, but it's like you got to put people in their proper time frames and stuff. Well, and yeah, and I just I it's hard again. It's hard for people to really, and it's and it's even me. It me. It's a stretch to talk about it, but I, I can relate to it a little bit more. Where it's like there was no sports. I mean, there there was if it wasn't the Redskins. And the Redskins rippled and the Orioles rippled south for a long period, you know, but Atlanta didn't ripple north. So everything was college and there was no pro, there was nothing. I mean, the, the stars that they had and how they, they were played into the sports community, you know, there wasn't, you know, big boxing matches that took place. There wasn't hockey of any, you know, re- repute or anything like that. It was, you know, baseball at a certain level. But even that, it's like it only went so far. And then it was auto racing, and it was wrestling, and it was college basketball, and that was pretty much it. Well, I mean, we've talked about this before, but if you like, you look about where the most successful promotion, the like the the really big successful territories, were generally places without major professional sports in that time frame. You know, Crockett. I mean, nothing, you know, no real professional teams, like big college teams, Memphis, no pro teams, you know, ten, you know, the Fullers in Knoxville, no, you know, again, you got UT, but again, no pro team. It's like Mid-South, you've got, you got the Saints who, you know, historically were a joke. But, uh, you know, it's like no professional teams in that part of the country then. It's like Eddie Graham down in Florida. I mean, you did have the Dolphins, but essentially outside of that, what did you have? Right. I mean, you didn't have. Oh, you know, yeah, yeah. Tampa Bay in 76, but they were a laughing stock. So it's like, I mean, there was literally no competition down there as well, too. Again, another place where, again, they, it benefited from, 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 again, having limited, yeah, limited play. And I mean, it's like. On the flip side, then you have the WWF and all the major cities. But again, while it was the big Northeast territory, I guess you know. Once again, you have to say what you have to balance business and quote unquote aesthetic quality of of the product. But you know, certainly Vince and Vern, while in large major metropolitan cities, were not the promotions that we longtime fans would. You know, if you're ranking quality of promotions, I don't think most people would put Vern or Vince, you know, in the top five, probably. It's like, then you got World, you know, World Class had, 
the Cowboys, and then eventually they had the Rangers. But I mean, the Rangers have never really, you know, anything. And then you've got the occasional. Oh, they, they, yeah, they, they, the Cowboys and they had UT. <laughs> yeah, but I mean, I mean, you know, football is kind of its own separate thing for Texas. But you know what I mean? Where again, it's college, and again, that that's all that's regional and seasonal. You know, and then you've got like the Northwest, which, you know, has, was always steady but never great. I mean, sort of business-wise. You know, you've got, you know, Shire and LaBelle. Again, those sort of go up and down, but were never really great. Quote well, California, California had competition, you know, in a lot of different ways and a lot of different aspects. And, they, their business was different, and, and the assaults on their business were, were a little bit different than in other places, too. So, yeah, I mean, you know, it's hard to, to be a big personality if Charlie O'Finley is in your town, you know what I mean? You know, and then St. Louis is, of course, its own separate beast anyway. Well, he was sports, yeah. I mean, right, that was but, the most unique spot. You know, and then Central States has never, you know, never been anything. So it's it generally seems like the – what we now consider probably the best historical promotions were the ones that didn't have pro competition more or less. Yeah. And running towns weekly. You know what I mean? Again, you're running these, you know, mid major cities weekly. Whereas if you had a pro team, you know what I mean? If Memphis, if the, if the Grizzlies would have existed during the height of Jarrett promotions, you know, how much money are people investing in season tickets or going to see, the Grizzlies, how much is left over every week to go see Jared on Monday night? Yeah. Maybe not a lot. Or if you're in Nashville, you know, and you've got the Titans and the Predators now, it's like how much money are you going to have left over to go once a week if you had a good promotion there, let alone whatever – year you want to pick Nick Goulas running Nashville. So, again, it's, you know, it's just a weird things where people were, again, it's, it's like everything is local. So, and again, you know, and as times have shown, you can't always transplant what worked for one promotion into another. I mean, we've, I think we've kind of seen now over the years that, what we would broadly call the Memphis style would pretty much work almost everywhere. It's like it worked in Louisiana. It worked. It kind of worked when Jarrett was kind of in charge in New York, sort of, you know, but, uh, you know, you look at all the, well, it's character based. It, it, it's going to work. It was hero based and it was character based. That's why WWF was able to to resonate in a little bit of a different way. And obviously, you know, to the victor go the spoils. So, you know, the promotion that was most like WWE being the most open to being showbiz, even before WWE was, um, you know, no surprise that, that Memphis ends up looking a little bit better. But it, it was the most battle tested to uh, to survive any type of wrestling holocaust and, and granted they had a lock on their city and everything but i think it would have been the same anywhere because of how simple it was you know guy comes in guy comes out they didn't waste much time if you didn't get over right away you'd go come back the next week in a different mask 
but the whole thing centered around Jerry Lawler. The whole universe centered around him. There were legitimate characters that were doing the announcing that were known from a news and a weather standpoint that people actually had believability and actually had some uh, belief in when they were doing the announcing for the show. So, like, you know, they had... They had enough sizzle to go with the steak, and and they had enough believability and credibility to go with the complete lunacy of the show. And when WWE has been at their best, they've been able to balance those things, and they've been able to really touch a lot of different people in the way that a pure wrestling show, a Watts, a Crockett, a a whatever type of wrestling show, just it just simply can't and won't, and and doesn't intend to. You know, even though it may say it wants those, it wants those people. You know, sometimes you have to do those other things, and if you're not willing to do them, it's going to be tough. Yeah. The uh, before we go, I uh, we we've certainly talked a lot about Crockett in amongst everything we've been talking about, but I certainly want to make sure that we talk about the Mid Atlantic Championship podcast that that we've <laughs> mentioned a couple times that you guys are doing. Um, you started with, you picked up with beginning of 1982 and so you're in right about where we are time-wise now so like mid-april yeah didn't intend to be that way but it's working out that way <laughs> um but i get you started with 1982 because it's on the network right that was that just a good place for you guys to start we thought it was going to be a really good, tangible starting point for people because it's a full season, and if anybody wanted to follow along, we figured that would be good because I thought about starting it later like to match up anniversary-wise. Like, Should we go X amount of years back and we start in like 84 or something like that? But it's like, well, let's start in 82 because if this thing does take off, we can burn through these shows and we can really take people on a nice voyage. So that's that was kind of the mentality behind it. Well, I think it's also good that 82 has lots of people familiar to your casual fan, either if they're slightly younger or closer to our age, because you've got Flair and Piper and Slaughter, certainly to start, and Steamboat to start with. So that's those are guys everybody knows, and then... You know, you've got Ivan and Oli and Stan and Valiant. It's loaded. And it's like, it's not, it's not, you know, 77 to 82, especially like, you know, it went on to like, I think 80 may have been, 80 may have been this, the the ridiculous year where it was like, you know, you name it, they were there for a second, whether it be Steve and Zatlas, whatever. I mean, it was, it was silly. But like, even if you look at 82, it's like, yeah. Oli and Hanson, and then we go into Briscoe and Piper, and it just the names are it's relentless. And Valentine and Flair, and in some ways, for what set up the revolution that happened, you know, once Dory, you know, the Dory Funk era into the Dusty era. I mean, '82 is like the pro wrestling worlds. You know, it's a it's a great microcosm or whatever the word would be of of the greater thing that was taking place. I mean, we were, the territories were just dying. Like McGurk, you know, we talk about in the opening of 82, he, he goes out there to try to save, uh, George Scott goes out there to try to buy and maybe, you know, turn 
tri-state into another satellite in the same way that Knoxville and Toronto were for Jim Crockett promotions. You know, could could we do something here? And obviously it doesn't work. But, like, if you look at that time frame, those territories are just starting to die. We're having this NWA World Tag Team title tournament. One of the reasons they're hyping it up so much is we just had all of the tag team titles die. In the last few years, we had Knoxville in Detroit in San Francisco. Those tag titles are finally going away. This revolution that's happening, this change that's happening, this cable TV, this consolidation of talent, this change, all of this stuff is happening on a grander scale. And, you know, it was not necessarily the intention to do that, but we wanted to add some context and some real – because you don't get that. Like, that was the thing we talked about when it came to uh, the last Battle of Atlanta – Man, you know, they tried to do some stuff and, and talk to some people on the website, but, like, the context was lost on people because they didn't understand why we had feelings for this and why the people then had the feelings that they did. It's just times had changed too much. So, like, we wanted to give some context, but, like, you know, in the midst of doing that, you really see the changes that are taking place and you see these massive shifts you know, you see them happening little by little in, you know, Glacier, like you know, as you're watching the weekly TV. But as that's going on, you know, the earth is shaking around you as we go into 83 and into 84, where shit just goes bonkers. Yeah, it's also and it seems like 80, 82 is one of the like. It's almost the beginning of like every territory is going to have one last sort of flourish before they yeah, the last before innocence the, yeah but well it's because it's like 82 i mean not necessarily mid-land like mid-land is going to start ramping up but generally it seems like 82 is like a high point in georgia and then like 83 is when you're going to get the peak in 83 and 84 is you're going to get the peak in dallas and then 84, you're going to get this explosion in Mid-South, which is going to lead to the UWF stuff that we were talking about before. And 83 in Memphis. And then, you know, Crockett, you know, you've got this, and then you've got the dip in 84, and then you've got Dusty. You know, in Florida, you've got the 83 stuff with Dusty and Sullivan. And so, which, you know, in isn't Portland. as... Portland. Portland is solvent. Montreal is, 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 is solid. You know, like, I mean... Unless it was California, and unless it was, you know, the the atrophying, you know, again, the the Mid Atlantic Toronto deal. But again, I'm, I'm I'm taking away from your point there. But sorry, go ahead. Well, it's just that you know we're nearing the end of this cycle, but at least each one of these places gets one last creative burst that you know now in 20 years later in hindsight we can look at as a historical object yeah. and say. You know, oh, it's too bad. You know, this was great and unfortunate. Again, it was just the changing world. If it wasn't Vin if it wasn't Vince, it was cable TV and Vince. And you know, the territories were going to die because their talent was going to get raided. You were talking about Memphis, and they sort of, I guess, Jarrett and Lawler sort of realized that, you know, at some point, that, you know that as soon as we create new stars, they're going to leave just because of where we are in the food chain. So as long as, you know, we keep our core and we constantly cycle in guys, then we'd be able to last. And again, that's like why, you know, if 
Robert Fuller would have had a bigger footprint in Continental, you know, than maybe earlier somebody would have stolen Jerry Stubbs or like Stubbs would have gone to Crockett with Arn, you know, or, you know, Watts would have oh taken, Watts, Watts would have taken the nightmares or, you know, Fuller and Golden would have gone someplace and, you know, I mean, Adrian Street pretty much went most places in the South, but, you know, there was, you know, I don't think he ever went to Dallas, you know, and, you know, and then Vince sort of made his own version. But, or, or, you know, it's like if, you know, Vern takes the Road Warriors, Vern takes the Fabs, and then they get taken, you know, and then the Road Warriors get taken. Or they become too big for Vern. You know what I mean? And then Vince steals Hogan and Ventura and Okerland and Bobby. You know, so it was... Like, I'm glad each of these places kind of had a renaissance. For the, you know, to, to sort of bookend their 30, 40 years of existence for most of these promotions. Almost orgasm thinking of Mr. Olympia chopping, uh, trading chops with Wahoo McDaniel. You know, either either one, it doesn't matter who's the good guy and who's the, the, the bad guy in that exchange either. I'll take Wahoo's the good guy. Actually, I'd rather have it that way. But, you know, oh, man, yeah, how great well, would that be? Well, there's so <laughs> many. There's, there's, I mean, the great thing about wrestling is there's so many what-ifs. It's like, what if Gino had come to Crockett? Would he have come with Tully? Would he have feuded with Tully? Would there have been, like, two sets of horsemen? It's like, what if DiBiase had gone to Crockett? Would DiBiase have been a horseman? You know, there's there's so many weird what ifs, and it's where guys went or they didn't go, and you know, what if there's there's so many what, especially in like '86 Crockett, what if Buddy didn't screw up? Think about how yeah. different. Think about how different 1986, the early part of 86, would have been if Buddy was still there. And so you've got Buddy with Baby Doll. Well, then, so Baby Doll doesn't turn face and go with Dusty. And then if you've got Tully and JJ, maybe they bring in, maybe they bring in Gino. Maybe Gino and Chris come in together. You know, I mean, is is there a horseman? Well, that's the whole thing is Flair, you know, is there... When you have Tully and Landell and Wahoo staring down Flair, and now you've got Dusty, and obviously Dusty, you know, is going to sit there, you know, and play both sides and be able to face face both sides. And Ric Flair can do that to a point, but those fans would not have wanted Flair to do that. They wouldn't want him to cheer him. And you bring in Barry, and then, you know, you have Magnum TA, you know, taking Barry's place there. But you have... You know, you know, Magnum going after Landell and you have, you know, and people don't realize this, too. And we talked about this on the, the between the sheets, the last one I did with Bix and with with Chris of you have Ric Flair and Magnum T.A. teaming against Tully and Wahoo. And you have Landell then being a thorn, not only in, in Flair's side, but in Magnum's side. And people forget about how. You know, I, again, this is at this point, this is happening where it, around this time in history where Magnum wins the title from Wahoo. 
Landell, who's new to the area, strutted into his after party in the baby face locker room with everybody, including Dusty Rhodes, standing there to, to dress down Magnum and to roll out and just like say peace out. And then on TV, challenging him and getting in his face and taking the heat to Magnum in the most aggressive way. Like, that, like Landell was serious. And then they takes him all the way through the year until you're talking about that national title. All he's got to do is show up. <laughs> all he's got to do is show up. And then later on, what if things had not gone the way they did with Magnum's crash? What would it have been for Jimmy Garvin? Would it have been Jimmy Garvin and Magnum TA and then... Garvin takes the U.S. title, and and Flair moves on, and, and and it's Magnum and Flair, and Magnum probably wins the title then, and and what happens, and and what goes on, it it's just all of the possibilities and all of the things that that came from this that we still have to look forward to on the podcast. I mean, there's just so much, and there's another reason I'm so happy in hindsight that we started in '82 because we get to lay all these blocks and there's going to be some hard times as we go through the Dory funk years and the, and the more the influence of Florida and then the initial hit of dusty in Texas in where it felt like everybody had a cowboy hat on, but then there's always that light at the end and that light, you know, that, that starts to shine in late 84, you know, into 85 and, and then certainly into 86, 87 and part of 88 is just, it's awesome, and I love doing the show, and we've gotten a great reaction to it. And, you know, I'm surprised nobody had tried to do it earlier. You know, it, to me, Mid-Atlantic is the thing that still lives, you know, inside. It will live inside WWE forever, you know, because it is WCW. It, it's it's Georgia. It's Central States. It's Florida. It's everything. It's, it's the real NWA. You know, that heartbeat is wrapped up in Mid-Atlantic Pro Wrestling and in Crockett Promotions, and being that foil for Vince and I think it's going to live forever. And I'm, I'm surprised nobody did it sooner, but I love the fact that we're doing it now. And the amazing thing is it's like, it's like you still got, you're getting the, the pieces are there now, but it's like you, you're even still so far away from steamboat and young blood versus slaughter and Kernodal. Oh yeah. It's like, Wait till you get to do the final conflict episode. That's oh, that's good. Be... You don't think I've been looking forward to that? You, well, I know. If you, let me tell you something. If, if anybody thought that the Starcade '84 or the Clash, uh, the first Clash uh, reviews were were something up their alley, I mean, you, you can imagine uh, me being so influenced by Steamboat and Youngblood and that feud. Yeah, I got my eyes are are heavily peeled on on <laughs> March twelfth, nineteen eighty three. Believe me, I'm I cannot wait. And you know what's so great too? And you know you're listening to the shows, and you know the time frame, so you know you know we're we're just at the end of eighty one. We have Jim Nelson get brought in, you know, and get and get you know this young man gets uh, put under Slaughter's wing, and then Kernoodle, this guy who had been around for a while. You know, Slaughter starts to poke the locker room and and he's got, you know, he's got a guy and nobody knows what's going on. And then all of a sudden, Kernoodle turns on all of his friends and he's the he's the dirty bastard. And the story, that loop that it takes and all of the details and all of that sort of stuff. I mean, we're just seeing in it's in, in its infancy now. Kernoodle and Nelson working together as a team and where Nelson is in the totem pole right now. And you know how that pendulum swings and you know how the feelings turn, and you know some of the dirtiness that's being done now is going to be returned to the Marines, 
you know, in, in, in another way later. And it's and you know, it's coming. And it's like all those movies that you see, you know, a zillion times, whether it be The Godfather or whatever, you know, your go to movie is, you know, what's going to happen. But you just you got to watch it anyway. And it gets you in the feels every time. And I know that's how it's going to be for the 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 road to Greensboro. And I cannot wait to, to, to take we're take, we're on that road now. But but some of the the off ramps and things like that that we're going to take, I, I just I can't wait to talk about it. There's a whole Toronto side, you know, of Crockett Promotions that doesn't get talked about that we're going to be able to play on a lot more. And I've been I've been so happy uh, that the reaction I've got for playing some Toronto promos on the show and making sure that people remember that, you know, Jim Crockett Promotions was, you know, it, it helped to build Toronto and then it helped to basically hand it right over to the WWF. You know, with the, with the booking of Johnny Weaver and the atrophy that took place there, losing, you know, taking their eyes off the prize. You know, it's just it's a fascinating, fascinating, you know, uh, story that just is is part and a very important piece of pro wrestling history. Well, I'm sure we've talked about this before, but when I did the one of the fan fests in Richmond last year, like I went over to talk because. You not you not have the the longest lines all day, but there was like a lull, and I was sitting sort of caddy cornered from from Jim Nelson, although he was not Jim Nelson at the convention. Um, and I was like, I said, I just I said, was it really as crazy as everyone says for that show? And he said, no, it was worse. Or better, depending. <laughs> I don't remember which word. He said he said it was like it was the craziest thing he had ever seen. And you know, and you think about all the stuff that he ended up. You know, he was on. I assume probably like the first couple of Starcades. He was on a couple of WrestleManias. But that was like the craziest show he said he had thing he had ever seen in his career. Was you know like the wall of pe- the you know the mass of people and it's okay. like you, you know like you tell people that now and you're like you know yes you know sports are sold out and blah 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 but when you tell people about some of those like southern promotion stories like like the final conflict day or that the day that like the rock and roll express shut down the the highways in north carolina trying to get to some spot show where traffic was backed up for miles and miles and miles. And it's like, not only could you not get to the building, not only were they telling people not to come to the building on the radio, but like it was disrupting the traffic for like the whole area. And I, I think that's, that's lost on people sometimes. Well, the, the, in the mag is again, I can remember, I think we we're going to the dentist. We ended up, we stopped, got the magazine before we ended up going to the dentist and sitting there in the waiting room. And I'm looking at, God, whatever it was in the wrestler, it was either the wrestler inside wrestling. I think it would have been the wrestler where it was the the overhead shot of, you know, the the building of sixteen thousand, you know, in the building sixteen thousand turned away. <laughs> you know, it was just it was awesome. It was so awesome. And then again, growing up and then going to the Baltimore Civic Center and arena and seeing the Rock and Roll Express to have the Rock and Roll Express and the Road Warriors and Dusty Rhodes, and Ric Flair, and, you know, you name it, on the same card. 
the, the decibel levels in the building and what they were like. I mean, the Rock and Roll, there was nothing like the Rock and Roll Express. And anytime they did an appearance anywhere, it was it was a circus. It was an absolute circus and a cavalcade of, you know, women, you know, eight to 80, blind, crippled and crazy, you know, of all kinds. And it's something that it's again, it can't. I don't know if it can be replicated today in pro wrestling. Certainly not. Certainly not. I don't think at that at the regional level that they did it then. Even though it was a national product, you know the the regional way that they touched people. I, I don't know if you're going to be able to do it again. You could still do wrestling in some of those towns like you did back in the day, but I you'll I don't think you'll ever get that type of feel back. It's impossible. No, I think that that that's just the kind of thing that is sort of. By by culture growing so much and being so splintered, I think stuff like that just you would need a really weird circumstance of stuff like that to happen in modern pop culture. And I don't, I just don't, I don't think it can now just because of the way things are. It's you know you you've got a you know, we're all too connected, we're all too smart, we're all too busy, everything's too overgrown. Too I mean, cynical I, in some ways. I mean, we really are. Yeah, it's just, yeah, it would it would be something that I, off the top of my head, couldn't easily imagine being replicated. It's like, you know, even, you know, at the height of, like, one dimension or whoever your boy band du jour is it's like are the is that craziness really the same as beatlemania i don't i don't think so or you know some of the early stuff with elvis or yeah some of this southern wrestling stuff i think Dude, I see what I'm supposed to care about. All these young kids that are just dying and overdosing and getting shot in the in the rap game, where it's like these are stars and R.I.P. And it's like I don't even know who you are. Like uh, you must be big to a splintered audience. The way they're talking about you, the people that I'm seeing the the likes and the retweets. Like there's thousands, so obviously you were somebody, but like you weren't known to everybody and I got my ear to it a little bit more than a lot of people. So, and I have no idea who you are. And it, in some ways in wrestling, it's like the same way, <laughs> you know, I think for as big as names as some of the people in AEW are, you know, and as much as they've been able to get back some feels of some, some old fans, I, I wonder, have they made new ones? You know, are they, are these names that are on national TV any bigger than these names that were on national TV 20, 30, even 40 and 50 years ago. You know, because if you think about it, what's 50 years from now? 70. I mean, people, you know, who was on TV then? Dusty Rhodes? I bet you people still know who, you know, that name. You know, it, it's interesting now. Yeah, I mean, I sort of have become, I mean, I'm more and more interested in old culture and less and less interested in current culture. And mm. I know that, like, there's a lot of times, like, on the on the Death Valley board when, like, you know, there's a running in memoriam thread for pop culture. And, you know, a lot of times it'll be, like, some actor, actress, musician, don't they're, like, don't know. And some of the younger people on the board are, like, you don't know who this is? And yet when we post about guys who were character actors in the 60s it's like 
than those of us in that demographic, you know, and I don't, ex you know, I'm sure a lot of people will just take today, like Mort Drucker, who was one of the classic Mad Magazine artists, passed away yesterday, today, at like 90-something, you know, I'm, I'm sure they, I mean, you could say it was a guy from Mad Magazine, and they're like, oh, okay, I mean, so they could put them historically probably in a frame, or... You know, we tell them how big a star Honor Blackman was in the mid-60s that, you know, she was, like, one of the bigger, biggest Bond girls. She was the smoke, man. And she was older, too, and she was still the smoke. And she was, was she, she the second Avenger, right? Yeah, was she Diana was. Diana Reagan and her? No, no, no. It was, well, first there was when it was just Steed and another guy who that lasted, like, a year or so. And then it was Honor Blackman as Kathy Gale for like two seasons, and then Diana Rigg. Then Diana Rigg, yeah. And then Diana Rigg, and then Linda Thorson, and then you get the '70s version with Joanna Lumley. Yeah, and, and Honor Blackman, you know, best known, you know, for the name and, and Pussy Galore, but like again, and I'm not a Bond expert, but I, you know, I get a kick out of them. If it's on, I end up falling into watching it. If, if it happens to be on, it's like, of, of all the Bond girls, I mean, again, it was just, the name was classic, it was iconic, but how she played the character and being a little bit older and all that sort of stuff, it was just, I didn't look it, you know, but just the, the maturity level that, that was radiated out of it, I just, she was really, really good, but yeah, you know, a name that Hey, you know, it's just one of those names that people today, you know, they would they would have had to to Google to to figure out who they were. Yeah, it's funny. And then when you look, because I mentioned something about her on one of the podcasts this week, but it was like I was looking at like her filmography, and like there was some stuff I knew. It was like that, you know, she was in like everybody. She was in at least she was in one episode of Doctor Who. Although oddly <laughs> enough, like in the eighties, so not even like. You know, roughly in her peak or whatever, but it's like that somebody would... that somebody on the cast or that worked there went, oh man, we got Hunter Blackmon. Yeah, we always liked her. <laughs> well, <laughs> we'll it's, find a it's, spot for her to come on. It's funny that there was times in the '80s where you you now look and you see like these sort of famous British actors, and you're like, well, you know, it's a lot of stuff. It's similar to act big stars now either being in the Marvel movies or doing cartoons where it's hey, it's like, I can't show my kids any of my movies, but if I do a voice in a Disney movie, yeah, you know what I mean? So it's like, hey, I've got grandkids. Hey, I can tell my grandkids that I'm going to be on Doctor Who. That's kind of cool. But she Absolutely. was in, yeah, but she was in, she was in A Night to Remember, which was like the Titanic movie before Titanic. And I was like, I totally did not remember. I had to go back and, like, look at some scenes online. I was like, oh. Because, like, when I saw that, like, the first time I saw that, I'm sure I wrote some known who she was by then, but I may not have put two and two together. But, you know, again, it's it's, it's that weird thing. I mean, when we're talking about cultural stuff, is like now everything's available. See, that's like, I'd rather... If you gave me the choice of watching a new movie, which could be good, or a movie that I that I read about in film class or that I had read about in books, 
from like 1958 that was never shown on TV, but now I can stream. I'd rather watch like the famous movie from 1958 than the movie from 2020 or, or old, you know, I'm sure like me, you spent lots of time as a kid reading about famous movies or old TV shows that were never going to be on TV because they didn't last very long or they weren't very good or whatever. But now that you can pretty much find everything, it's like, like if I told you you could watch, because I, I just I posted about this today because it popped up in my feed. If I could tell you right now, I could send you a link on YouTube and you can watch an episode of Car 54, Where Are You? That not only has Fred Gwynn and Joey Ross and Al Lewis, who are the stars of it, but Charlotte Ray, young Charlotte Ray was on there playing Grandpa Al Munster's wife. <laughs> Listen and, to the big mouth? Yeah. And <laughs> and uh, one of the guest stars who was an ad executive, based on the plot of the show, was like young David Doyle from <laughs> Charlie's Angels. Be damned. <laughs> or you could watch some slick Netflix TV show. Which of those would you, would you rather watch for 15 minutes right now? Dude, you know what I'm gonna watch. I mean, what was the what was the episode of Mr. Ed? Was it who did they call in in Los Angeles? Was it Sandy Koufax? I can't remember. But yeah, give me give me that. You know, it was actually I fell into actually last night when I was at work was a uh, British Pate, which you know the the newsreels and the documentary, and they have a a site where they have some of their long form stuff that you could be you know, get subscription to, but they all of their old newsreels are available for free. And I'm sitting there watching that, and it's like, you know, there was Channel 13, and I don't know if we ever talked about this, way back, uh, early on Saturday mornings, they would play, oh, God, was it, oh, God, I'm trying to remember, but they would play UN, about 5 o'clock in the morning, they would play, like, UN 60s and early 70s film reels that were just it was the most random shit you'd ever see in your life but it's like i always and then they would play tim's broadcasting it would be benny hill sometimes with the boobs which was extra entertaining and then danger mouse would come on but like the 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 you and like the newsreels and stuff like that i love that stuff and i could still you know i love watching that stuff and anything that comes on today i mean i can't you know i I don't want to you know I just, I tend, I guess it's just because I'm getting older. I love going back and watching that old research stuff. And I, I'm just wired that way anyway. I like, I enjoy history. I, I like being able to look back and, and and watch all that sort of stuff and see the, the you know, th- seeing things documented. I like to document things. So, you know, it's just more up my alley to, to fall back into that sort of stuff anyway. Plus the comfort's there. You know, I'm far more comfortable and it's far more enjoyable. One of the reasons I'm doing the Mid-Atlantic broadcast is because Every day I do Wrestling Observer Live, and I'm very happy that I get to do it. I'm very blessed that I get to do it and that, you know, Brian has believed in me in the way that he has. Nobody else has ever done that, and I'm very happy about it. But, you know, I'm not going to lift the gift horse in the mouth, but it gets difficult sometimes talking about modern wrestling and ratings and cinematic presentations and all that sort of stuff. And I needed a place to run back to. And wrestling was always that thing that I always was able to have a comfort zone in. 
And I don't know if fans today get that with wrestling. Now it's like you used to you used to have the thing you had in common with some other freak that you saw that you may have had nothing else in common with was you were at the wrestling event together and you had that to, to fall into. Whereas the you know if the whole world was crumbling around you, now it's like to be a wrestling fan you got to fight with other wrestling fans to, to have a spot. You know, it's like the complete opposite, I feel, in some ways. But, you know, for me, it was something to run back to and have comfort in and to go back into when I was the most happy being a wrestling fan through this revolution of the 80s to go back and have that podcast to do. You know, it's a peace of mind that I'm glad that I have the ability to do now because it keeps me sane talking about, you know, this stuff from modern times. Yeah, that's one of the advantages of being a one-man operation is – Fortunately, I do not have anyone. I am not uh, honor-bound by any of my uh, projects to have to watch anything. It's like it's like for the people that want to watch it, that's cool. I have no great desire to watch uh, Tony Khan's show. I have no great desire to watch Vince's show. So I'm like, I'm happy to sort of read about what happens. I'm happy to generally to, to read when The Observer comes every week. To, about what's going on, but like I really don't want to watch it. It's like, you know, if I'm at work and you know I've got an hour to kill, I can watch one of those shows, or I could watch an hour of Memphis, or an hour of Mid South, or an hour of Florida, or an hour of Continental. I, you know, again. Like me with new movies, man. I can't like I. I would rather go back to the thing that I know is gonna to pay my time. My time is, is too. I don't have enough of it anymore. So I don't know if I want to invest my time and in, in my money in something that, man, it keeps burning me over and over again. When I can go back to this thing that I know is gonna be right and righteous and you know set me up for my day, or I'm gonna come out of it feeling good as opposed to wondering what the hell I just saw. Yeah, I just tell everybody I'm like. That, see, the great thing about all the stuff, since we were talking about this, is like, um, luckily, I mean, you and I watched a lot of crap as children because we had three channels or four channels or five channels. It's like... Unless you're you know, a Dave Meltzer, who will quickly point out that uh, everybody had cable. You know, unless you didn't, Dave. I'm like, I'm like, Dave, I did not... We did not get cable until after I had gone to college. Word. Now, admittedly, we had a rotor, which was almost like having cable in a way. So, I mean, I mean, I got again. We'll we'll end where we started talking about TV. But I mean, <laughs> our embarrassment of riches, where we were fifty-seven out of Philadelphia playing this, and sixteen out of Salisbury, and twenty-five out of Lancaster, or whatnot. <laughs> well, that's the. Th- I mean, it's the. Like I said, I mean, and not just for wrestling, but, like, if you want to take, like, sports, like, the advantage of living, of being able to watch Baltimore and TV, and Philadelphia and Lancaster was, like, on Sundays, I think I could watch five NFL games because of the flip-flopping blackout rule. Yeah. So that, like, if the Eagles were on at 1 o'clock on Channel 10 – well, it would, it would have been Channel Three then. So, like, if the Eagles were on in the after, were in the early slot on CBS, and but but Baltimore was a separate TV market, so Baltimore wasn't blacked out. So the Colts would have been on at one o'clock, and then the Steelers would have been on at one o'clock 
on Channel 8 in Lancaster. Yeah. So there's three yep. games at a time, and then probably that meant one doubleheader game at 4 o'clock on one of the two networks. So it's like if I'd have been in the city, you know, I would have had two games to watch, whereas I had four. So that, and you know, that's the same as for crappy syndicated TV in the afternoon when I have, you know, three UHF stations in Baltimore and three UHF stations in Philadelphia or whatever. So that meant, you know, not only did I get, you know, Batman and Star Trek and whatever else, but, you know, from the time I was a little kid until I came back from college, Channel 17 in Philadelphia every afternoon gave me McHale's Navy at 1230 and Hogan's Heroes at 1 o'clock. <laughs> you know, oh. and and I don't remember anything. I mean, I'm sure there were shows that were staples in Baltimore that I don't remember off the top of my head, but I know those were, you know, always on. And the same with cartoons. So I would have had, like, my choice as to when I wanted to watch. Well, I had phased out of, you know, by the time they came on, I had phased out of He-Man and Thundercats, but, like, I mean, I remember as a being in elementary school and the fact that I think Star Blazers was and Star Blazers was a big deal because it was episodic. So you had to make sure not to miss it. So I think in Baltimore, it was on before school and in Philadelphia, it was on after school. So like if I missed one day, then I had a backup. Luckily, because we had a rotor. Man, that's the for me where I was. We I had the embarrassment of riches with the Baltimore and Washington uh, antenna, and we would get Lancaster, and then sometimes if the weather was right, sixteen out of, of Salisbury or seventeen and fifty-seven, fifty-seven especially out of uh, Philadelphia, and then you know some other Hagerstown. I think it was twenty-five. I think forty-three was Allentown. That was a good wrestling one too. Well, Saturdays, 40, I think well, world 40, class. 43 was York. Is that York? Okay, so as, yeah, that as, was... As we've, as we've discussed before, the weird thing about 43 is that's where I found World Class, and why did I find yes. World Class on Channel 43? Because it was a PTL station. Oh, was it really? See, we would... The only time I remember being able to see it would be Saturday nights it would come in because we'd get that replay of World Class. It, of course, you know, we'd already seen it, but goddamn it, you know, of course I'm going to, you know, watch it again if he you know, put it on again if I could. So, yeah, I didn't realize that was a PTL station. I'll be darned. And I think they showed, I think 43 showed the current world-class show and the Legends of World-Class show. Because I remember we, although that may have been on, by then that may have been on 57. But I remember, because I think I still have it on videotapes, of like, because it was very weird, because when I was watching in 85, it was like, I think that, then we were past... I think when, when I started watching World Class Live, we had passed the Freebirds, and it was Chris and Gino were the, were the number one feud, and then, like, and then the gang. But I remember seeing these weird shows where it was like, who who is this Armand Hussein guy? <laughs> and the, who are the Super Destroyers? And... Why? And and guys were just younger. And then I think, and I think Bundy was still there. 
Yeah, me too. This was probably like 81, 82 world class that they were showing. And it was just, I just remember being, it was really weird. Because I had to, because, again, you have no reference materials other than the magazines. And you're going to, you know, you can't, your average issue of PWI is not going to fill in these gaps for you. It's like you kind of have to do it on your own. And try and go, okay, this is, they finally said what day this is from. This is from March of 1982, and now we're in July of 1985. So that's why, you know, everybody's younger, and I don't know who these guys are. Oh, but I've seen this guy on another show. So he must have, because, because I'm trying to think, because if the Irwins were the Super Destroyers in Texas, like, I guess then I would have seen them as the Wild Bunch for Vern. I guess that's probably where they were at the correct time in 85. Yeah, they were the Long Riders with Vern. Yeah, that yeah, that would have been 85 because they were they were in the mix a little bit with the Warriors and Gagne and Brunzel. But, you know, I don't think I don't think a young unknowledgeable un- 14-year-old would have learned would have been able to rec- put the Super Destroyers and the Irwins together and recognize they were the same people. You know, probably not. Yeah. But again, that's what being like, I guess that's the fun of being a historian is like, it's not all dry and boring. No, it's fun. And like, I mean, you know, you talk like not just wrestling with anything, you know, again, it just, you know, and I know the things that you grow up with tend to be the things that you love your, your whole life. You know, the things that were. You know, they didn't push back. You always have that love for it. You know, the football, you know, Chris Zellner, you know, especially he's the same way he shares that love of of football, you know, the NFL and things and old NFL films and things like that. And it's like you talk about, you know, do what Yahtzee was on a Sunday where, where I was, was because we get Channel 2 was NBC in Baltimore. Channel 4 was NBC in D.C. And Channel 8 was NBC in Lancaster. And CBS in Baltimore, it it was 9 and 11, D.C. and Baltimore. And if CBS had the NFC doubleheader and, like, Washington was playing Dallas uh, or, or, you know, New York was playing Dallas or New York and Washington at 4 o'clock, like, you'd have, like, the doubleheader game of, you know, whatever, Washington and Philadelphia during the day, New York and Dallas would be at 4 o'clock. And then still, though, you'd have three games if Pittsburgh was playing at home, if Baltimore was playing at home, you know, and if Washington, you know, or whoever it would be like, I mean, you get multiple games on, on different stations, you get three, you know, upwards of five games, not counting the game you get on Monday. So it's like sometimes, I mean, it, it, it would work out very nicely. Other times it was, you know, relatively, you know, hellish if, you know, when the Colts were really bad and you saw a really bad Browns Colts game or you know whatever it would be and the the Redskins were, were beating the the breaks off of you know whoever it would be at the time you know when they were really good or Dallas when they were really good it was you know it can make for a rough day but it was also you know at times too it was a lot of fun and going back and seeing you know how some of those games were laid out and how they, they you know how they showed up in, in different areas I, I still don't know I still find all that stuff interesting and so I love finding out when going back and seeing what shows were on at what times back in the day wrestling wise because 
like you mentioned, you could watch wrestling all day on Saturday, literally all day on Saturday and Sunday. You've got more wrestling at that time than you're than than what's available to you for free now. And you get a lot of wrestling for free now today, but it's all the same stuff. Whereas back then, you know, from show to show to show, it was different. Sometimes for the same company. You know, sometimes Mid-Atlantic would have a completely different feel or Pro would have a completely different feel than Worldwide. Not often. You know, in fact, they became, as time went on, they became more, uh, you know, had a more symbiotic relationship or whatever the word would be. But, you know, there would be times where, for whatever reason, it would be a polar opposite, and it was great. Well, I didn't realize until later that, like, with Crockett, that you had feuds that were only going on on TBS and you had different feuds that were going on the syndicated shows. Yes, it would drive me nuts as somebody, again, you know, not having cable at times. It would it would drive you bonkers, and then they would give you a taste of it, or for whatever reason, you would you would catch it or read it or, or hear about it, and it's like, oh, man, it would drive you nuts, especially when we were on the loop, you know, for a while. That that was a killer, too, man. You, you We'd be two weeks out, then you go over to somebody's house on Saturday morning and watch you know, uh, TBS, and it's like, wait a second, what the hell, who's, why does he have the belt? What is going on here? You know, because a move got made on WTBS, and you didn't know about it on syndication, or they weren't going to mention it on syndication. Well, uh, since I'm sure you did not get to vent your spleen on Wrestling Observer, probably, and since we were just <laughs> mentioning, uh, do you want to give me 30 seconds on these new Atlanta Falcon uniforms? Man, like, it just seemed to be that everybody wanted to go back. And I know Rich McKay wanted this when the stadium opened. A lot of people did. The throwbacks that they've been using, the red helmets of the 70s and the black jerseys of the 90s, or, of the you know, the 70s and 80s of the helmet, and the black jerseys of the 90s, you know, the Dion Glanville era, you know, into the, the Jamal Anderson era, like, those throwbacks people have liked. And and why not do that? So I was a fan of doing that and bringing in the, the, the all-black, you know, pants with the stripe down the side that they would use in the 2000s when Warwick Dunn and Michael Vick and Jim Moore were there and things were humming. And in that way, you you have all of that. And then make the, the logo bigger, which they did on the helmet. I would wish they kind of went back to the, like I said, the other one. But you if you wanted to make it bigger, you could have. But they decided to change everything. And they're going to use the 90s uniform solely as the throwback, which I guess is okay, but it's just I'm old. So I see the block type of lettering that they have. I see the ATL on the front. I see the bigger logo of the the newer bird, and I just, I don't know. It doesn't work for me. I I think they're they're not slick. I think the kids probably like them. I know Chris Zellner likes them. I know some people that, you know, are younger are okay with it, but, like, I don't know. It's just not something I would have did. I, I would have thought going back in tradition a little bit would have been the better way to go. But again, it's like this whole, you know, radio show is, is, is this whole podcast is shown. I'm old, so I kind of like that stuff. But I thought playing off that old tradition, there were a lot of people, I think, like me that, that thought that way. But obviously the, 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 the real people don't. And, you know, I, I, I cringed when Marilyn did the, the gimmick with Under Armour where they would have the 75 million piece uniform and Oregon doing the same thing. But you know what? That's the wave. And that's what people have been jumping on. And that's what that's what's sold. That's what's worked. And if it hasn't, if it didn't, then they probably wouldn't be doing it. So I understand my place in the minority. I understand my place in my 
demographic, but I, I still I still would have dug them just going back to what I think a lot of us would have liked, which was that that old feel. I like how uh, somebody joked on UniWatch that instead of putting ATL, why don't they just put Hotlanta on there already? But for real, that well, that's kind of the thing was like, why not then do make it more gimmicky? If you're going to go with the gimmick, I mean, go all out with it. I mean, do do something. I mean, they always talk about the in brotherhood, like put a hashtag there. You know, I mean, like do do something more revolutionary than that. I would rather just see the shield there at the the end of the neck. Like it used to be, you know what I mean? I, I'd be just fine with that, but that's this is what they've decided to do. And again, I know they do these tests and everything like that. I just, I don't know. I mean, this is not as bad as like you know that that Broncos tried. They they made a change one time that was awful, and the Forty Niners uh, did one that they had aborted very quickly. But like, I don't know. The Broncos are another one. I think it's time that they go back to the Crush Unis. I think it's just. You know, it, it whether you want to call it ironic or whatever, however you want to frame them going back to do that, I, I think you would be better off doing that than trying to keep going into the rollerball future. The one thing I can't complain about is that at least this year, I mean, whenever we get baseball, that at least the Padres are back to being brown. And while I don't like the uniforms 100%, it's, a, it's at least one step forward by going a little backward. So, you know, that makes me happy. Like, it's I'm happy that, like, my baseball team has kind of gone back a little, and I'm happy that, like, my hockey team is one of the ones that, like, generally doesn't change their, you know. We, we fans, we that are fans of the original six are kind of lucky that, like, there's not too many gimmicks with our jerseys. So, it's like, and occasionally they're good. It's like, you know, you got your... You got your Liberty Bell head or your Liberty head, which, you know, you look at all the throwbacks was not or the gimmick ones. The gimmick third jerseys was one of the more tolerable ones. Absolutely. Yeah. You know what I mean? So you kind of get the feeling that they're probably not going to ever mess with the Rangers jerseys. The Leafs jerseys get tweaked every so often. Detroit's jerseys get tweaked every so often, but not to as you'd really notice. Chicago's really never get tweaked, you know, depending on how you feel about the head. You know, and the Bruins generally, you know, don't get messed with. You occasionally get your yellow jersey with a big bear head, but, you know, for the... the, Habs. And the Habs. and, And then when they do, you know, you know, the Habs in Toronto have so much history that they can just afford to do a throwback from a hundred years ago. And instead of being radical, and again, that sort of plays into hockey's more conservative old white guy, Canadian nature. But I mean, you still get your weird Montreal striped barber pole Jersey, you know, and you get your, Toronto St. Mike's once a year yeah, for St. Patrick's. Know, it, it, but that's cool. At least cool. it goes back in time. Yeah, at least there's there's a, a a thing to latch on to to that in history. At least for that one, they're not they're not innovating, they're not doing too much innovation there. And if they do, again, it's like those you know, like with baseball, like the Mets and stuff like that. Like when when they originally started doing the St. Patrick's Day, 
gimmick of like they just put on a green hat and like if you knew the gimmick you know they the gimmick was we're gonna do a gimmick <laughs> you know where now it's like the the gimmicks are the everyday jerseys well the fact that teams now put out schedules of when they wear what jerseys should tell you it's like you know there's nothing wrong with just having home and away and then the rare occasional special occasion it's like Again, if every day is a special occasion, then it's not a special occasion. Exactly. Exactly. And that, yes, I, I agree with that 100%. That's like the people that wanted to move uh, a couple of years ago with the, the Falcons, like to, to year round. Like that. And then the Orioles were the same way, too, where it's like, you know, no. I mean, I like some of the different combinations of what the Orioles would do if, if they decide to do it with the Baltimore across the front or every once in a while wearing the, the orange pullover, if they decided to do that and they haven't really, and I, I wish they would actually, but like, yeah, I don't want to limit it too much because some of that stuff is good. But as long as it, to me, it's like, as long as you, you can reach back to the past and play off of that. I, I tend to like it a lot more than these, you know, these really rabid, you know, jarring changes to me, unless the, your organization is the absolute shits. You know, and you really need to change things. I hate those type. I hate changes just to make changes. That's what the Wizards did. I mean, essentially, at the end of the day, that's what the Wizards did. And it's unfortunate because, you know, they would still be better off as the Bullets. <laughs> you know, all these years later, I still say the same. Yeah. Uh, Mike, I want to thank you for us going for a short show. We went <laughs> probably about our normal time. But uh, before we go, like we said, you've got Observer Live every day, and you've got the Mid-Atlantic pod often more than once a week uh, nowadays. So uh, anything else you want to mention? I, just, I really appreciate you having me on again. I love doing this and I love being able to, to talk about old stuff and you know, to, to have an appreciative audience that likes to, to listen to us talk about the, this, this older stuff. And, and, and now, you know, some of the newer stuff, too, but how it – how it plays on everything is, is, is great. And I really appreciate it. And there's always still the Adam and Mike big audio nightmare, uh, which Adam has do, been doing far more uh, as far as a solo project goes, because I've got so much going on and work and everything else. My schedule, it's, it's very, very difficult. So Adam's been doing a great job holding down the fort there, but I'll still pop up there from every once in a while. And that's available for subscribers over at F4WOnline.com as well as Wrestling Observer Live. We are now on Twitch. I know it's this is not necessarily the audience for it, but you know a lot of you gamers out there, if you, you you're knowledgeable about that, we've started up with a free Twitch stream, uh, 3 p.m. every single day, Monday through Friday, 6 p.m. on Sat on Sundays. Uh, Wrestling Observer Live, myself and Brian Alvarez uh, do that show uh, free on Twitch. It's available for video subscription over at F4WOnline.com, as well as for podcast subscription over at F4WOnline.com as well. Uh, you know the deal with that. Go to the, go over there. And, uh, yeah, the Mid-Atlantic Championship Podcast with myself and Roman Gomez over at Mid-Atlantic Pod dot com uh, part of the arcadian vanguard podcast network over with the mid-south podcast and cornet shows and john mcadam and, and jeff bowdrin and and all of those guys so john arezzi so a fun bunch over there and, and, and more of a 
uh, more of a historical nature. So if you're listening to this, you like history, you, you weren't familiar with stuff over there or may only know Cornette, you may want to go over there and take a listen to some stuff because, uh, you know, with McAdam and, and Bowdrin and, and Barry Rose, who's got, I mean, his knowledge of Florida is, is obviously, it's ridiculous, second to none, and all the work he's done with conventions and putting things together and all that sort of stuff. So, you know, if you like history, um, you know, the, it, the Brian Last is more than just Jim Cornette. He's been able to facilitate a bunch of us doing shows uh, like the Mid-Atlantic Championship podcast, which we enjoy very, very much. I'll say, when when do you get to, when do you get to be the fill-in host uh, to do this? to do the uh to do the stud cast with ron i you know what i i wouldn't i i if i i, I would do it if if asked if nominated i i would accept but you know bowdrin is so much better it was so much better doing luke kippelman i think it is is good with it as well too my i like to sit under that tree and listen and i would just be sitting there too dumbstruck and i don't know I couldn't do that territory the justice it would deserve to, to do without having Carl Stern next to me feeding me questions. You know what I mean? You know, doing John's show, doing John Arezzi's show was right up my alley because of my fandom at the time and listening to sports radio and, and knowing the market and knowing New York and, and, you know, being very familiar with what he was familiar with, you know, with the hotlines and, and what was going on with WCW and the NWA at the time. You know, that that was right up my alley. That was perfect for me to do. So I, I'm far better that way than to do Ron's show. I am I am in awe of that show, and I, I, I man's got to know his limitations, and I certainly know mine there. It's like now you need, you need to pitch to do the uh, to do the Flair Mulligan Knoxville era podcast. You could just incorporate that as 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 an outshoot of the Mid-Atlantic podcast. Oh man, look, that's that's one thing too that when side projects when I thought of doing a bunch of stuff, it's you know trying to to hopefully wrangle Les Thatcher and and talk to him about it and talk to Kevin Sullivan about it because you know those guys are are not spring chickens and they got a lot to say and a lot of knowledge. I mean, god, Kevin Sullivan, one of the reasons I love talking to him so much is like who else can you talk about Leo Garibaldi with and who else can you talk about Roy Shire with and, and, you know, really being in the head of Eddie Graham and just he's such a wealth of, of knowledge. Mephisto, you know, who the hell talks about these guys? Uh, Buck Robley, you know, these characters who talks about these guys and their booking influence and what they meant to a territory. You know, that stuff gets lost. So being able to talk to those guys and be able to talk to them about Knoxville, because I ain't going to be able to talk to Flair, I don't think. So, like, to be able to talk to them about it, they're going to give me everything I need to know, you know, and, 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 and some real knowledge as to, you know, not just what was taking place there, but, like, how Johnny Weaver and the people that ran the towns on the other side of the mountain and how that played together, how it played together in Georgia, how they had to match their schedule in Knoxville and how it it, it, it it had to dovetail into running Cincinnati the next night and things like that that were teamed with Georgia on their northern tours. And Georgia needed Mid-Atlantic and Knoxville TV to hype their shows going to those areas. So, like, all that all that serendipity, all that geeky stuff, I mean, that's that's what we want to get into on the show, obviously, as you can tell. You know, that's what we're looking to do on the show, and that's what I, I really would like to do more of. And I think it's I think it's important. It's the one. This is the one way I can give back. You know, 
WL, you know, with Observer Live, it, it adds to the discourse in a different way. I think sometimes in a negative way. But with that said, I think when it comes to history and when it comes to honest to God feelings and love for something, you know, that's something that just can't be denied and it's universal and it's forever. And that's what my, I want to continue to make sure the generations down the line really understand why Mid-Atlantic and why these old territories were so good. That's the, that's the amazing thing about, about Ron's podcast. It's like you think about, I mean, that was, that used to just be this huge black hole of stuff. And oh, yeah. Of, I mean, not, even if you take out the Atlanta stuff and the Knoxville stuff, which is pro, you know, which are two important things in the history of the business. But it's like just learning all the little stuff that he's been able to to share, you know, in the relatively short time they've been doing that show. I mean, it's not short anymore. But, I mean, relatively speaking, like how much that, like, we've all learned just from that show. It's because, I mean, all I sort of knew about Knoxville, you know, was, you know, was at the other end of Memphis and – you know, that the fans were so crazy, they blew up Ron Wright's plane. It's like, and then Smoky Mountain. It's like, I mean, it's like, what did you I mean? Other than like the skeleton of stuff, it's like, I don't think any of us really knew that much about Knoxville. No, or Southeastern, because they just, they didn't let, you know, and I was Weston Mag first. I was, you know, the, those magazines first. And even the other magazines didn't really touch it, you know, but they, they would at least do it a little bit. But, like, you know, unless you went back in the day, you didn't know about what was taking place in those other places, you know, unless it was the, you know, the wrestling review eras of the magazines and, and, and things like that. I mean, who who talked about Tri-State? You know, the wrestling news would. But if you didn't have access to that, you didn't know about any of this stuff or what was happening in the Gulf or anything like that. And to know, like you knew the, the, the Welches and the Fullers, like they built wrestling in the South and they built wrestling all over. But like, it wasn't until the show until Ron really started mapping it out and laying it out and laying out how they did do the business and how they would put somebody there and put him here. And you know, the, the, the measures that they would go, it, it just, I didn't know. You know, and, and Stick to Wrestling with, with John McAdam had a show. Uh, it was from around this time last year where they had Mike Norris on, who gave a basically, and I, you know, I don't know if they intended to do this or not, but it was like they, he basically laid out Gulf Coast Wrestling right down to the sale to the Fullers. And it was like, holy shit. <laughs> like it was stuff like some of it I knew. But some of it I didn't know, and I, I certainly wouldn't be able to recite it like he did it, and him by him doing it, it's such a handy-dandy resource now where it's like, okay, I can go right back to that, and thank God. And then to have, you know, Ron keep filling that in, you know, after the sale, you know, and, and him laying out, it's like all of a sudden just with two podcasts, we have, or really a handful of podcasts when it comes to Ron as he goes step-by-step, step, it's like, we're going to have we have that whole history. We're going to have that whole history. You know, once he moves down there and he's done some stuff on the, you know, the 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 super stud cast on the, the, the Patreon site, like we're going to have that whole history with only a handful of podcasts. And that's something that a lot of people worldwide and, and nationwide have no clue about. And that history needs to be preserved. 
Well, it's funny because, I mean, you know, we've heard for years and years and years about how great the Memphis TV show was and the ratings and all this stuff. And, again, if we take Ron at his word, and we have no reason to doubt him, it sounds like his Knoxville TV ratings were almost as crazy as the Channel 5 ratings in Memphis were. But we never knew that because, you know, who knew about Knoxville? And, I, you know, I didn't know. I didn't know how intelligent he was. Like, I knew he was smart business-wise and everything, but, like, I didn't know. When you hear him talk about his voyages that he took and the positions that he was in, you know, and, and I just, he, I, I didn't, I never knew how to take him. And, you know, we knew Robert Fuller. <laughs> we knew certainly knew him as a personality, but, again, not not growing up there and, and having all of that wrestling be unicorns to me and having that family be a unicorn to me, except for the, you know, the very rare time. I mean, I'm trying to think what the AWA time with Memphis, I'm trying to think of the first time I would have saw Fuller on national TV, I guess maybe Memphis when you know, I had had a chance to, to watch FNN score, you know, once in a while when they would have it on there. But like, you know, I, I had no clue. I really didn't know what the, you know, how, what kind of businessman and how intelligent and how well, just how good Ron Fuller is, <laughs> you know, and how engaging of a personality and all that sort of stuff. I, I This has been the most humanizing, interesting. I'm so happy. I would have never thought about it. Like, hey, you want to hear Ron Fuller do a podcast? Ah, I don't necessarily know. I think I'd rather hear Robert, but shit. <laughs> you know, this, this deal with Ron has been fantastic. Yeah, I mean... I really had no concept. I mean, again, I start watching in 85, you know what I mean? And, again, he's a name in a magazine. You know what I mean? It's like, yeah, I get to college. You know, again, we don't see Continental here. It's like, I get to college. I finally get to see Memphis on cable. So there's the stud stable in Memphis because, you know, Robert's booking there in the fall of 88. I'm like, oh, okay. I like, I've seen, the, I know these guys from the magazines, you know, Fuller and Golden and blah, 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 blah. You know, and then you see, you know, them, and then they show up, and then they end up on ESPN. But like, you know, it's like really by the time, you know, I might have had a better chance of, of like meeting Ron Fuller when I was covering the Indianapolis IHL team. Yeah, in, in yes. the 90s, because I could have run into them when, like, Cincinnati or Nashville was playing Indianapolis. So that's why it's weird. It's almost weird now, because, again, when I started watching, to me, Robert is the Tennessee stud, because I never saw Ron yes. yes, until years and years later. Absolutely. Yeah, no clue. Well, yeah, Robert Fuller's the Tennessee stud, not Ron. I mean... You know, it didn't. It didn't really dawn on me with Ron until it was. It would have been to the RF. It would have been, or I would assume it would have been RF at like the the Maryland shows, the MCW shows, and stuff where you'd buy the comp tapes and like. Again, he was like you said, he was a name in the magazine. You knew he was six nine. They talked about him being a basketball player, but Christ, anybody that was tall, they talked about you either farm boys or basketball players. And a lot of them, you could tell, you know, if you, I was an athlete, you know, I like playing sports. So I could tell when you weren't an athlete, you know, you'd tell easily by their footwork and everything. And then to see Ron Fuller on these comp tapes where like it would be a clip of whatever, and then it would be a clip of Ron Fuller against whoever, 
Ric Flair at Batwell Auditorium, and it's like, yo, this dude is moving. And, you know, you've seen Robert Fuller wrestle, and then it's like Ron is like, oh, like, damn. Like, how is this guy not world champion? Like, he was just like, he'd throw drop kicks, and you would see him moving. It's like, this dude was moving. You know, him and Harley Race or whatever it would be, and it was like, wow <laughs> you know and then obviously with youtube and you know the the be the ease of being able to see old footage now and in southeastern being out there in public domain or at least i don't david woods I, <laughs> as much public domain as possible um you know it, it it's made it accessible and you're going back and seeing things that like i mean you know the 80 talk about wrestling tag teams in 83 84 you know, the, the, the prime of tag teams in for me, 83, 84, 85, 86, 87, those five years. And you look at Anderson and Stubbs and what they were doing and the stud stable at that time down in, 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 in southeastern continental. Oh, my God. There was no doubt. You watch that stuff. There was no doubt you knew what Arn Anderson was going to be. And you knew what he could be. And it's, you know, as fast as he could lose the accent. And he never really did. But, you know, that was the only thing, changing the lingo and maturing the, the, the lingo. But, like, he was a natural from day one, and he's such a big fish in a small pond down there. You know, it's funny. I don't know if we talked about this last time you were on, but don't you get the feeling that if he hadn't bought Knoxville, that Ron probably would have ended up being NWA champion, considering he had – one, he's a third generation, so he's got the politics. He's good. He's been working in Florida for like three or four years. And then he starts making hits in St. Louis. It's like, and he's a legit athlete. and a, But it's like, other than the fact that he's like a little too tall. But it's like, doesn't it make sense that like sometime after after Jack and maybe after one of the Funks that like he may have been champion one of those times instead of Harley. Doesn't that make perfect sense? Absolutely. Absolutely. Good. Yeah. I mean, even in place of Terry at that point, although I, you know, that it would have been, I don't know. I think that actually would, that was the right move, but it, it, like still, you know, even if it was after that, he, he was believable because of his size he had a family history and a legacy that was was undeniable. So he was royalty that way, the same way that you had Funks and you had Briscoes and you had, you know, it was the Fez Mushnick thing, you know, it was together. But like, you know, the, these dynasty type of things, Eddie Graham liked them, you know, Jim Crockett, you know, that, that was the thing, too. You know, with, with them, how many times was, was he the... You know, or was a Welcher or Fuller the second vice president of the NWA? You know, they were always in the mix where if they, you know, hey, it's our time now. And we'll look, we'll drop it to Kerry, you know, in, in Texas Stadium or we'll do this or we'll do that. You know, if they who knows, who knows what could have happened. But they just they were the ultimate homesteaders. And in some ways, I don't you know, you talk about like if things were different, if things would have changed. Imagine if people knew what they knew about the locations where they were in. I bet you people wouldn't look so down on Wilbur Snyder and Ole Anderson and, and, and Robert and Ron Fuller for homestead, Ron Fuller especially, uh, for being homesteaders. I mean, why would you want to leave? You know, Bob Armstrong, say way. You know, if I was living down there, can you imagine the talent if people would have thought about the quality of a life and how much money you can make and how, you know, what, what it could have been? 
because that's the one thing too is you look he, all the talent that he had he always had a good crew of talent no matter where he was because there were enough people that appreciated what it was and unfortunately you know there was you know there was only so far you could go with it at certain times but you know imagine if, if guys like who were doing those long trips in mid-south at the time really talented guys you know looked at you know stringing together knoxville and florida and, and doing something else you know instead of working there you know how how different things could have been well i mean if you start sort of like adding up the votes it's like you figure you know if you've got roy and where you know roy owning a ter- having a vote and buddy having a vote and eddie graham having a vote and sam having a vote since he was using him and pat o'connor liked him it's like isn't that pretty much what you would need to like win the vote probably you know and you don't know where else he would have worked had he not bought knoxville you know you figure in georgia you know what i mean oh, so yeah you figure, you figure if, if you're a main eventer and you're working florida georgia and st louis then you're being tracked to be world champion and then all you need to do is add in the crockett and if you, again if you're working florida and georgia working the occasional shot you know Working Greensboro is not that big a deal. So, oh my God, no, no, and he would have been again. He would have been, literally, he would have been literally huge no matter where he went anyway. <laughs> you know, but like he would have been him and Wahoo, him and Blackjack. I mean, he he would have fit banging around in and no matter again, maybe not Portland. You know, I, I you could see some matchup issues there, but almost no matter else where else you sold you sold him in the NWA, you know he could bang with him. Yeah, and he could certainly work like the the, the mid south style. You know what I mean? So yeah, he's just he would have fit just about everywhere. So no, it's funny. The one thing I was going to say before we go is. You know, we talk about all the lost footage of Knoxville that we don't get to see Ron in his prime. I don't think, you know, because of how how early it was and sports debate was, imagine if we had the footage of the game that Ron played at Miami when he played against Artis Gilmore in Jacksonville. <laughs> That's so awesome to think about, isn't it? <laughs> it's so cool. But it's, it's, it's fun. Yeah, it's like, because I remember that, like, when he did that show, I was just like, that's just crazy to like again when you take wrestling and you put it in the context of where it exists in the in real sports in the time frames you're like oh yeah that would have been neat well dude when you were talking on twitter the the thing with uh with the with rick steiner with uh, scott steiner in the ncaa's and it's like he was in the same weight class as mark coleman and and the thing was mark coleman went to miami of ohio and 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 uh, you know Obviously, Scotty was going to Michigan, but it's like, yeah, so I had to start looking. It's like, did they ever cross paths at any point? I mean, I can you imagine those two guys going at each other in real life and, you know, on the mat, you know, or in a bar, no matter what? It's just, well, it's, it's, well, it's crazy. And if you think about it, if, if Coleman was at Miami of Ohio, I mean, Steiner went to work for Wojo, so he would have been, you know, learning his trade in and around ohio and michigan so you know it's yeah who knows what what could have happened then i guess and that was another thing again circling back it's like you know watch loving his real sports and it's like yeah unlike one of the early episodes it's it's like 
Well, one, he calls Rick Steiner Rob, which is funny. But, yeah, that's why it's for you. But he's like, you know, Rob's brother wrestles in Michigan, and he was in the NCAA. You know, he just finished in the NCAAs until he lost to a guy from Oklahoma, which, of course, is funny. You know, <laughs> but it's like, yeah, so you wonder if if he would have been, like, a little older. It's like, can you imagine if Watts would have had the Steiner brothers in the UWF, even Green Steiner brothers? Oh, my God. Going against oh, my God. Either, either they, they would have killed people. They would have literally killed people. Either I would say if you thought if you thought they they were brutal to people and jobbers in WCW, and then you add in add in them either with or against Doc. Mm. That's crazy. But uh, <laughs> yeah, but oh, uh, I would yeah. I would have hated to be Gustavo Mendoza and. Uh, some of the other folks that would have uh, who would have had to jerk the curtain at times for him, like, Gary Young, and who else we got there? Uh, Mike Boyette. Well, like we said, Young Tracy Smothers. That yes. was and yeah. well, just imagine, imagine poor Young Shawn Michaels had had he been a little later in his career going to being a jobber in Mid South. Mm. He yeah, might have I don't lost. Think his, we would have had the same Shawn Michaels. And I was gonna say he would have lost his smile a lot sooner. <laughs> but anyway when they knocked it out of his face <laughs> yeah that's true yeah so yeah mike thanks again uh people definitely check out the mid-length pod and wrestling observer live um we've got some other folks lined up for these we'll hopefully go back to our short form format uh in the future look for those hopefully sometime next week and everybody thanks for listening we'll talk to you next time 